Hey guys. So today we're talking about a book that I was previously determined not to cover. I've talked about it in passing. There are more obscure books by this author, uh, author I feel deserve the spotlight, and I've already read aloud a short story by her. We are at the point in the rotation where I should be telling you about a book with a crazy cover, and I was planning to read The Silver Metal Lover by Tanith Lee with an illustration that resembles a red-headed android Fabio romance novel. Unfortunately, after reading you The Smallest Dragon Boy last time, I started rereading the Dragon Riders of Pern books for the first time in years and couldn't stop. After a quick Instagram poll to figure out who might want what, I have decided to break format and venture down memory lane. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast. This is your portal into science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. We cover them here because they're too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie. Or, in this case, they deserve a movie. I'm your host, Erica Brickley. Check out my Instagram to see what books we might cover in the future. Remember to subscribe to my YouTube channel and ring the bell to be notified so you don't miss an episode. After this, we'll return to our usual rotation through obscure, classic, weird, and children's books. Since the start of 2023, I've slowed down my podcast writing schedule. <laughs> Originally, I'd hoped to put out an episode every two weeks, but I've been really focused on getting a couple books written and searching for a literary agent. One of those books is a memoir, surprisingly, about my Russian best friend whose life has been turned upside down by current world events. I'll admit the writing and submission process has been challenging since nonfiction is not really my usual genre. The other book is a short fairy tale about my family's dog going on a dragon slaying adventure. Let me know if you'd be interested in seeing that one self-published on Amazon Kindle. It currently features pictures that I generated using AI, but I might have my sister do some illustrations since her art is fantastic. Check her out on Instagram at Ariel Rose Fine Art. As I said earlier, I was supposed to cover something with a crazy cover illustration this time around. But I got caught up in rereading some childhood favorites. <laughs> if you've been listening to me on YouTube for a few months, you'll know that I adore Anne McCaffrey. I read aloud her short story, The Smallest Dragon Boy, and have always planned to talk about some of her lesser-known books, The Kulura, Dinosaur Planet, Partnership, Acorna the Unicorn Girl, etc. Of everything she has written, sometimes with the help of her son Todd or other writers, McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern series is the most well-known and could almost be considered for the next classics episode. Alas, I was weak and started rereading them on my own rather than get to work on our regularly scheduled programming. Fortunately, my Instagram followers agree that Dragonflight would make a great episode. So let's do it. You can keep an eye on my Instagram for future polls and future updates. I've talked about how I discovered Dragonflight a few times on this podcast. The short of it is that I made three major book discoveries when I was in middle school. One was Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which has acted as a roadmap within my favorite genre. A second was my very first graphic novel, Inuyasha by Rumiko Takahashi, that started my journey towards becoming a Japanese language major. And the first and most important of the three books was a fantasy sci-fi novel called Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey. I would recommend listening to the Smallest Dragon Boy episode on YouTube to hear the full tale. At some point, I'll figure out when is a good time to add the bonus episodes to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
Uh, for now, they don't really fit the numbered episodes in break format, so we'll see. Dragonflight is the first of the Dragon Riders of Pern novels. Pern referring to the far-off planet where events take place. The original trilogy includes Dragonflight, Dragon Quest, and The White Dragon. Following those three is another trilogy, Dragon Song, Dragon Singer, and Dragon Drums. More than a dozen other novels follow these. Legends mentioned in the other books are given a full backstory, as well as parts of the planet's history that no one in the series have any knowledge of. It's an expansive world full of McCaffrey's signature characters full of depth, humor, and individuality, and it's a legacy that her son Todd has continued adding to. McCaffrey herself was born in America, but her real home was an estate named Dragonhold Underhill in Ireland, its name taking inspiration from the Lord of the Rings universe as well as her own. Basically, my sister's dream life. McCaffrey is considered one of the masters of science fiction and fantasy, and after her death in 2011, she was buried with a headstone carved with a dragon. That happened to be the year I graduated high school and was just beginning my own journey as an aspiring writer. Let's read her biography from the back of the book. Born on April 1st, Anne McCaffrey has tried to live up to such an auspicious natal day. Her first novel was created in Latin class and might have brought her instant fame, as well as an A, had she attempted to write in the language. Much chastened, she turned to the stage and became a character actress, appearing in the first successful summer musical circus of Lambertsville, New Jersey. She studied voice for nine years and, during that time, became intensely interested in the stage direction of opera and operetta, ending this phase of her life with the stage direction of the American premiere of Karl Orff's Ludus Donato Infante Mirificus, Mir- Mir- Mirificus, in which she also played a witch. By the time the three children of her marriage were comfortably at school most of the day, she had already achieved enough success with short stories to devout, uh, devote full-time to writing. Between her frequent appearances in the United States and England as a lecturer and guest of honor at SF conventions, Miss McCaffrey lives at Dragonhole in the hills of Wicklow County, Ireland, with two cats, two dogs, and assorted horses. Of herself, Miss McCaffrey says, I have green eyes, silver hair, and freckles. The rest changes without notice. So, what does the cover look like? I actually have two copies of Dragonflight, which was first published in 1968 by Ballantyne, and again in 1978 by Del Rey, and many times after that. My older copy is a real treat. <laughs> Painted by Gino D'Achille, it reminds me of the old non-stop, <laughs> of the old stop motion Clash of the Titans movie from the 80s, though this image is over a decade older. On a rose-hued background, a yellow dragon flies. It has four clawed feet two wings, thin horns, and a long neck. It looks back towards a red sphere or moon in the sky. On its back sits a woman with wild hair dressed in a sexy flowing white dress and sandals. If I'm honest, I didn't realize this was the same book I grew up with when I first saw it. The copy I uh, was more familiar with that I found at the library back in middle school was the most famous one painted by the legendary Michael Whalen. You can check him out on Instagram at the Art of Michael Whalen. This one is bright green with a mountainous background and wraps around the front and back covers. A golden dragon, again with four feet and two wings, flies across the front. An eerie orange sphere or moon hanging in the sky beyond. Uh, the dragon is beautifully detailed with veiny bat wings, a ridged tail, shiny skin, and sparkling eyes. 
On the back of its neck is a tiny woman seated in a saddle. She has dark, wild hair and lifts one hand as she looks back over her shoulder. Flipping the book over, you see that she leads a whole line of dragons and riders. These are the two covers I have, but there are many more I have yet to collect. There's a version which depicts the dragons as being a lot skinnier, more medieval looking. There's one that just shows a dragon's glittering, jewel-like eye. There's another version of the flowing white dress image. There's one that looks like folk art, one that reminds me of Game of Thrones, one that shows a bunch of dragons bursting from an egg. There's even a graphic novel adapted by Bryn Stevens and others. The list goes on and on. Just doing a quick image search on Google for Dragonflight McCaffrey brings up a dozen alternatives. If I had room on my shelves, I'd try to get one of each just for the fun of it. Book 2, Dragon Quest, has the same variety when it comes to covers. There are follow-ups to the ones I own, uh, one looking a bit stop-motion claymade, uh, and a pretty blue one, uh, blue and purple one, again, by Michael Whalen. There are many I've never seen before on Google Images. Uh, a special shout-out goes to the one being sold on eBay for $250 that looks especially low-budget and overly sexy. <laughs> there are others that show the dragons with a cacophony of wings and tail fins, or make the dragons look oddly small. And book three, The White Dragon, also has plenty of options to choose from, but I won't get into it. For this episode, I will summarize Dragonflight and briefly outline Dragon Quest and The White Dragon. I can't cover the whole series, seeing as there are more than a dozen Dragon Riders of Burn books, but the first three books are something of a set. You can find Dragon Song, Dragon's Dawn, and others on your own if the characters and settings speak to you. As for the supplemental material, I suggest looking up Karen Wynne Fonstad's Atlas of Pern for more maps and diagrams, Jody Lynn Nye's The Dragon Riders, or sorry, The Dragon Lovers Guide to Pern for cultural details, and Robin Wood's The People of Pern for character portraits. All these guides were written with or by Anne McCaffrey, so the information is true to the source material. Though I would recommend reading a few of the novels first, so as not to spoil too many plot points. Each book includes a map by Bob Porter that shows Planet Pern's two main continents and major human habitations. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get started. <laughs> Note to parents. These books include discussions about sex, though not in great detail. If you would like to avoid all mention of adult activities, please give the episode a listen first before sharing with others. Thank you. Introduction. When is a legend legend? Why is a myth a myth? How old and disused must a fact be for it to be relegated to the category fairy tale? And why do certain facts remain incontrovertible while others lose their validity to assume a shabby, unstable character? Rukbat, in the Sagittarian sector, was a golden G-type star. It had five planets, and one stray it had attracted and held in recent millennia. Its third planet was enveloped by air man could breathe, boasted water he could drink, and possessed a gravity that permitted man to walk confidently erect. Men discovered it and promptly colonized it. They did that to every habitable planet, and then, whether callously or through collapse of empire, the colonists never discovered and eventually forgot to ask, left the colonies to fend for themselves. When men first settled on Rukbat's third world and named it Pern, they had taken little notice of the stranger planet, swinging around its adopted primary in a wildly erratic elliptical orbit. 
Within a few generations, they had forgotten of its existence. The desperate path the wanderer pursued brought it close to its stepsister every 200 Terran years at Perihelion. When the aspects were harmonious and the conjunction with its sister planet close enough, as it often was, the indigenous life of the wanderer sought to bridge the space gap to the more temperate and hospitable planet. It was during the frantic struggle to combat this menace dropping through Pern's skies like silver threads that Pern's tenuous contact with the mother planet was broken. Recollections of Earth receded further from Perny's history with each successive generation until memory of their origins degenerated past legend or myth into oblivion. To forestall the incursions of the dreadful threads, the Pernies, with the ingenuity of their forgotten Terran forebearers, developed a highly specialized variety of a life form indigenous to their adopted planet. Such humans as had a high empathy rating and some innate telepathic ability were trained to use the, and preserve this unusual animal whose ability to teleport was a great value in the fierce struggle to keep Pern bare of threads. The winged, tailed, and fire-breathed dragons, named for the earth legend they resembled, their dragon men, a breed apart, and the menace they battled created a whole new group of legends and myths. Once relieved of imminent danger, Pern settled into a more comfortable way of life. The descendants of heroes fell into disfavor as the legends fell into disrepute. Part 1. Weir Search. Chapter 1. Drummer, beat, and piper, blow. Harper, strike, and soldier, go. Free the flame and sear the grasses till the dawning red star passes. Lessa wakes up in the cold back room of the kitchen she shares with other drudges who work as the lowliest servants within Ruatha Hold. She feels unnerved, as if danger is afoot, just as she did ten turns of the seasons ago when her family was killed. Quietly, she gets up to go outside to the courtyard to see the watchware, a sort of reptile watchdog. It is an old, ugly creature, but it listens to her as the last remaining member of the Ruathan bloodline, the last true heir to the hold. It doesn't care about her matted hair or dirty clothes. Lessa has successfully hidden from Fax, the conqueror now in possession of six different holdings, and plans to reclaim her birthright someday. As they walk together at the end of the watchwear's chain, Lessa looks up at the red star that has begun to appear in the eastern sky at dawn before the sun's light drowns it out. Her sense of danger has faded, and she has no idea where it came from, be it from the sky or elsewhere. Chapter 2 From the weir and from the bowl, bronze and brown and blue and green, rise the dragon men of Pern, aloft on wing, seen then unseen. Falar is a dragon man from Benden Weir, the last remaining of the original six weirs on the planet Pern. Dragons come in four main colors, bronze, brown, blue, and green. The bronzes are the biggest, like Falar's own dragon, Nementh, followed by the browns, like his half-brother Fenor's dragon, Kanth. Blues are smaller, and female greens are smaller still though no dragon is exactly small, and all can carry multiple people on their shoulders. The only other color is gold, and only queen dragons are that color. 
Dragons are remarkable creatures with faceted, jewel-like eyes who have a telepathic bond with their single rider, a bond that lasts for life. If they chew Firestone, they can breathe flame into the air. If they so choose, they can disappear between spaces to appear anywhere else on Pern instantaneously. Falar and his wing of dragon riders pop out of the cold between above High Reach's hold. On Pern, there are three kinds of human dwellings. Holds, carved into stony hillsides where most people live and work. Craft halls, where artisans learn and perfect their skills. And mountainous weirs that are the home to dragons, dragon riders, and their community. Unfortunately, the relationship between weir and hold is in decline. Traditionally, a hold, such as the one below, would be clear of all vegetation, but it is green with grass and moss. Falar knows that the red star is in the sky, and it's getting bigger, swinging closer, and if it comes too close to Pern, then death will rain down on the planet. But many people believe those days are over. There hasn't been a pass for 400 turns, twice the length of time the songs and records say. All the weirs are empty save one. Why should holds have to support the weir when dragon men are now useless? Even dragon riders are getting complacent, and Falar is the only bronze rider who conducts firestone drills. Worst of all, there is just one golden queen egg left. The last queen, Nemorth, was slow and sickly, and weir woman Jora was lazy and useless after Falar's father passed away, and the weir was taken over by another bronze rider named Rigul. Now that Nemorth and Jora have died, all hope lies in that final clutch of eggs sitting on the sands of the hatching ground in Bend and Weir. The dragon riders are on search. They must find strong female candidates in the hope that one of them will impress the baby queen dragon and be strong enough to help rebuild all that was lost. Falar is determined to find someone with true willpower, someone he can guide into the position of Weir woman and eventually take his place beside her as Weir leader. His dragon, Nementh, rumbles approvingly. Unfortunately, Philar is faced with dealing with Fax, the man in control of not one, but six holds. There was a time when the finest weirwoman of Pern came from the Ruatha bloodline, but Fax killed that family and now rules like a tyrant. The arrival of dragons in the courtyard causes quite a stir. While the dragons are confused by this response, as they would never hurt a human, Philar privately enjoys reminding the common folk what dragons are capable of that they're not just myths living in the mountains. Fax comes to greet Falar, somewhat rudely mm. since he hasn't done as a lord ought by memorizing the names of bronze riders, but he has no choice but to allow Falar's men inside to begin searching while the dragons fly off to hills and mountaintops beyond. Though a bit fat and a bit of a slob, Fax is clearly a powerful man who dominates all his wives and beats his servants through words and fists into submission. Suddenly, Falar isn't sure he'll find anyone with a spirit left in these parts. Falar and Fenor share the same dark hair, though Falar is a bit wider in the shoulder. They take a look around, noting that the people here eat much better than they do at home, relying on the holds to send tithes. <sighs> Only the stringiest animals and shriveled greens are sent their way, just enough to fulfill obligation to the weir. They also see that Fax has built out from his hold, much less than other holds have started doing, though it's less about the tradition of remaining behind safe rock walls and more about maintaining all that he has conquered. Almost no one believes the Red Star will actually drop burning spores, named threads, on them anymore. 
What once fell from the sky and devoured anything and everything organic has long since gone away. Reluctantly, Fax introduces Falar to his wives and concubines, but the only promising mind in the bunch is his main wife, Lady Gemma, but she is getting old and is currently very round with pregnancy. Clearly, she does not like her husband much, but conducts herself with a dignity and respect for dragon riders emblematic of one who shares some amount of Ruwathen blood. As Falar and Fenor explore the hold and the craft halls beyond, it is clear to them that most women and girls have been hidden away, lest they be taken to the weir. Life among dragon men is more freeing for women than anywhere else, so even if a woman does not bond with a queen dragon, she usually chooses not to return home, seemingly lost to the mysterious halls and beds of the dragon riders. The half-brothers discover that an ex-dragon rider lives here as the head clothman, a man named Lytol, whose dragon died in an accident during a game some years back, when his name would have been shortened to Lytol. This is every dragon man's greatest fear, as losing the telepathic connection with your dragon rips out a part of your soul. Lytol is an observant, intelligent, serious, thin man mm. who tells Philar and Fenor many things about the state of Fax's holdings. He advises them to kill Fax for the good of the planet, since Fax's ambition is contagious and gets other Lord Holders thinking dangerous thoughts. He also tells them rumors about Ruatha Hold, where once many great men and women were from, but now has fallen into disrepair, nearly every steward assigned to it falling ill or impotent or dead. Despite his preoccupied speech, Philar decides he likes Lytol since the old man disapproves of the greenery allowed to grow around High Reach's hold and doesn't think much of Ragul, the current weir leader. He clearly believes the Red Star is getting closer. When Lytol can no longer stand to be in the presence of other dragon men, Philar and Fenor leave him. The half-brothers agree that their prospects are grim, but they must push on and visit each of Fax's holds. Fenor is a loyal younger brother and wing second, and he sees that Falar is greatly concerned about the Red Star, Fax, and the search, privy to a bit more emotion than Falar shows anyone else. Disconcerted by the notion of being dragonless, for one man only ever has one dragon friend, they walk away from the craft hall. Chapter 3 Honor those the dragons heed, in thought and favor, word and deed. Worlds are lost and worlds are saved, from those dangers dragon braved. Dragon man, avoid excess, greed will bring the weir distress. To the ancient laws adhere, prospers thus the dragon weir. After four days with facts, Philar is no closer to finding a suitable candidate, but he can tell the antagonistic man is eager for a fight. Philar is glad that he came here and not someone overly honor-bound like Rigul or someone young like Salan or Denor, as they would probably take the bait and do something unseemly, like getting into a fight. Searching for queen candidates is important work not to be sullied with fighting, and dragon men need to be on their best behavior more than ever as Pyrenees people increasingly wonder about their usefulness. Having a weak weir leader like Ragul, whose philosophy is to stay home without bothering the holds, and a weak weir woman like Jora, who did absolutely nothing, has not helped the situation. Falar knows there's more to being a dragon man than silly games, and he has a wing of loyal riders to back him up. They remember why it is that boys are presented during the dragon's hatching in order to make first impression and gain a mind friend for the rest of their lives so that one day they can protect Pern from the Red Star. 
So far, Falar has explored High Reach's hold and Crom hold, and now Fax has brought his wing to Rawatha hold. He can't deny he maintains a sliver of hope that one of the old blood still lives. Nemeth and the other dragons can feel a power here. Unlike other bronze riders who might bring back girls who would make nice partners later on, Falar is focused on finding a truly exceptional weirwoman. Much to his dismay, Ruatha Hold looks terrible. There is something wrong everywhere he looks. Too much greenery, too much disrepair. Have these past ten turns been so unkind to its former glory? Fax takes pleasure in Philar's expression, having picked up on Philar's hope that Ruatha might still have someone worth his time. However, Philar is a master of casual level-headedness, though he is still surprised when Fax gets so angry he almost pulls a knife on the dragon man. While Fenor knows that Philar, and more unusually, Nemeth, dislikes Fax immensely, he cautions his half-brother, saying that Fax is a strong fighter with more bulk than Philar has. They have to be careful here in Ruatha, for Fax seems unnerved and the dragons are restless, both Nemeth and Kant, as well as the others. Now on high alert, they enter the hold. Chapter 4 The hold is barred, the hold is bare, and men vanish. The soil is barren, the rock is bald, all hope banish. Inside Ruatha Hold, Lessa stops cleaning a fireplace to look up and hear that not only Fax, but dragon men are coming. Leaving the hearth cold, she runs off to hide her eager smile behind matted hair. Dragon men! This is the opportunity she's been waiting for. If she can get Fax to renounce his claim on Ruatha due to its poor state, with such powerful witnesses, she can reclaim her birthright. But she knows she must be careful and cunning, for, quote, Dragon men are men apart, unquote. Lessa knows this well, and with some pride, for there are dragon men in the Ruathan bloodline. It's rare to see dragon riders anymore, since they mostly stay near Bend and Weir in the east. Quote, Perhaps the dragon men were finally going to call the lords of the holds to task for the disgraceful show of greenery about the holds. Well, Lessa was to blame for much of that in Ruatha, but she defied even a dragon man to confront her with her guilt. If all Ruatha fell to the threads, it would be better than remaining dependent to facts. The heresy shocked Lessa even as she thought it. Unquote. For a moment, she wonders if the coming of dragon men is the reason for her sense of dread she had four days ago, when she woke up and went outside to see the red star. But she decides no, and carries out her plan. Though she feels bad for some of the people who have had to suffer due to her machinations, Lessa has been working towards this day for ten turns. First of all, the fireplace in the Great Hall is unlit, so the room will be cold. Second, she makes sure the roast cooks unevenly in the kitchen. They already don't have much to offer their Lord Fax, especially on such short notice. Using her mind, Lessa also pushes on the people around her until they reach into the wrong spice box or aren't careful with their food preparations. Third, she smiles under her hair as someone comes into the kitchen in distress, saying that windows were left open and moths let in, so the best rooms are in disrepair. <laughs> Chapter 5 Watch where, watch where, in your lair. Watch well, watch where, who goes there? The watch where is hiding something, Philar says. 
Neither Bronze nor Brown Dragon has been able to get the old reptile to reveal anything about the source of power they sense. Fenor looks around the chilly great hall full of cobwebs and observes that it seems unlikely for Ruatha Hole to have gotten this bad in just ten turns of the seasons. He admits that Falar might be right that someone of the old blood lives, but it could as easily be a boy rather than a girl, and they need a girl to impress the queen when she hatches. His words do nothing to stifle the fire in Falar's eyes. As they continue to look around, Falar learns of more problems that have delayed the opening of rooms to the dragon riders backed up chimneys, trash blown in over the winter, and so on. He finds himself taking a liking to Lady Gemma, Fax's main wife who he brought along on this trip, as she labors through pregnancy at an advanced age. Everyone knows Fax dislikes her and hopes she'll die in childbirth, which makes Falar dislike the man even more, especially when Gemma makes it clear she believes in the old ballads just as Falar does. She would have made a wonderful weirwoman were she younger. They are seated next to each other at the dinner table. Ruatha's warder presents the meal. A herd beast roast, fresh bread, and a few fruits and roots. And all of it terrible. The meat is terribly cooked, the bread is full of sand, and everything else is shriveled. Fax is outraged. The day one of my holds cannot support itself or the visit of its rightful overlord, I shall renounce it. He shouts. Lady Gemma gasps, and the dragons roar from the heights outside. Falar and the others feel a shock of electricity, a surge of that power they noticed when they arrived here. However, looking around, Falar cannot determine where it came from. The unpleasant meal commences as drudges and servants carry things and serve food. Lady Gemma seems to be struggling to contain her disgust, just as Falar is. Suddenly, he realizes it is not the food, but labor pains that are making her so uncomfortable. When he tries to assist her, she waves him away, whispering that this could be a false alarm at her age, and that she dares not leave when Fax is angry and dangerous. As the Lord continues to rage, Falar finds himself saying, Obviously, Ruatha cannot support the visit of its Lord. You must renounce it. He is just as shocked as everyone else at what he has just said to a man as volatile as Fax. By the name of the egg, has he lost his mind? He tries to play it off and Fax seems ready to attack when Lady Gemma lets out a little groan. This gets everyone's attention. The tension is momentarily broken, and Fax roars with laughter. I will renounce it in favor of her child, if it is male and lives, the Lord shouts. Heard and witnessed by dragon riders, the deal is made, and Lady Gemma is swept out of the room by women and servants while Fax goes to the roast to guffaw and devour. Before she leaves, Lady Gemma grabs Falar and whispers, He means to kill you, Bronze Rider. He loves to kill. Then she is gone, and a drudge is sent running for the birthing woman. Chapter 6 Lord of the Hold, your charge is sure. In thick walls, metal doors, and no verdure. Lessa runs to get the birthing woman, full of rage and anger. So close! Fax was so close to dueling the dragon man and either dying or renouncing his claim to Ruatha. If only that stupid woman hadn't made a noise just then. Bronze dragon Nemeth croons at her as she runs past, and she absentmindedly silences him as quickly as she would the watchwear. She's angry at the dragons for scaring the old reptile and has no time for them. She fetches the birthing woman and brings her into the hold to Lady Gemma's side. Things are going badly. 
At first, the birthing woman is overcome with pressure, since the child being born might be the next lord, but she quickly springs into action. Meanwhile, Lessa finds herself at Lady Gemma's side, holding her hand against the pain. But she is still angry about what happened before, how Gemma prevented Fax from dueling the dragon man. Her thoughts push against the lady, who looks at her through a fog of pain. What have I done to you? She gasps. Done? Lessa growls quietly. I had Ruatha almost within my grasp again when you uttered your false cry. Lady Gemma insists that the dragon man cannot die, that there are so few bronzes left, that all are needed. This confuses Lessa, but before the lady can go on, she twists and collapses, dead. For a moment, Lessa is nearly overwhelmed with guilt. She had no right to be so cruel to this strong woman in her final moments, a woman who believes the old ballads. Lady Gemma had probably suffered much more by Fax's hands than Lessa had, in many ways. This death is a tragedy. Ten long turns of fortitude carry Lessa out of the room and into what she must do next. Even if mother and child are dead, she does not have to say so. Carefully hunching her back to look like any other poor, dirty drudge, she returns to the great hall and says, The child lives. It is male. Fax reacts in an eruption of fury, leaping forward and slamming his fist against the drudge's face, knocking the little body to the floor like so many rags. Stop, Fax. Philar bellows. It was heard and witnessed by dragon men. Stand by your sworn and witnessed oath. Witnessed by dragon men? Fax repeats with a laugh. Dragon women, you mean. Women, parasites on turn. The weird power is over, over for good. The men are upon each other with belt knives. Philar has almost hoped for this moment, but he is also worried about the little person lying still. He knows now that that drudge was the source of power he'd been looking for. He'd felt it when she walked in the room with her announcement. What if that hit and fall killed her? But first he must take care of facts. The Lord is big and powerful, but Falar is more agile and fast. The two men circle each other with knives and grasping fists, fainting to test one another. Fax attacks, again and again, and is quicker than he looks, but Falar avoids his blows. At one moment they are locked before breaking apart, though neither is unscathed. Falar's shoulder burns like a brand where it was sliced, but he manages a deep cut that leaves Fax's arm dangling. One last charge forward, and Fax all but crushes the dragon man, but gets a dagger to the chest that kills him. Falar is not happy to have done this. He is a dragon man on search. He immediately goes to the little fallen person, pushing back her hair to look at the dirty face. With a sigh of relief, he confirms that she is still alive. So, he takes her through the corridors to his chamber and lays her on the bed. She hardly weighs anything, and he can tell that she is as young as he'd hoped. Falar is convinced she is of Ruathan blood and hid herself away to wait for Fax to renounce his claim here. Lessa wakes up and watches him warily. When she learns Fax is dead, she gets up and says, I reclaim my own. I am of the Ruathan blood. I claim Ruath. Pilar laughs and points out that the hold has already been promised to Lady Gemma's son, at which point Lessa reveals her lie. This revelation infuriates the dragon man, and he grabs her arm angrily. You provoked a dragon man to fight? He shouts. To kill? When he is on search? Lessa cares nothing for his search, and she takes off running. Pilar makes chase, only to discover that Lady Gemma's son actually did survive the traumatic birth. Fenor is amused to see his half-brother so worked up and they head out to the courtyard where Nemeth projects into Falar's mind that he's captured the girl. 
They stepped out just as the bronze dragon awkwardly lands on his back feet, carrying Lessa after picking her up from one of the upper windows where she was sneaking out. Pilar proceeds to explain that Lady Gemma's son actually did live, and that Lessa now has no claim on Ruatha Hold. If she had come to the dragon men when they arrived, they would have assisted her, but instead she has aided in naming a new successor. She is saddened by Gemma's death and devastated by her failure. Ruatha is mine, she insists. Ruatha? Falar asks tauntingly. When you could be Weirwoman? Falar explains his purpose here on search, and Nemeth croons approvingly at his choice, leaning his head close to her. He likes to have his eye ridges scratched, Falar says. I know, Lessa replies quietly. Nemorth has laid a golden egg, Falar continues. This time we must have a strong Weirwoman. The Red Star? Lessa gasps. <gasps> and Falar is glad to see she is frightened by the spot in the sky and that she understands how seriously Pern needs a good weirwoman. He also realizes just how powerful Lessa is, how rebellious, how strong-willed, how clever. If she is not guided well, she could lead Pern to disaster rather than save it. You are needed, not by Ruwata, he says, a little less teasing and patronizing than he has been. You've won here. Let the babe be reared in Ruwata. You have command of all the holds as Weirwoman, not ruined Ruatha alone. You've accomplished Fax's death. Leave off vengeance. I never thought beyond Fax's death, Lessa admits. You can be Weirwoman, Falar repeats. Or perhaps you enjoy rags and matted hair, dirty feet, cracked hands, sleeping in straw, eating rinds. You are young. That is, I assume you are young. Is this the be-all and end-all of your ambition? What are you that this little corner of the great world is all you want? Nemeth lets out a bugle that's answered by the other dragons, delighted that Lessa has agreed. Philar calls to Fenor and asks that he have Lai Told, the ex-dragon man, be the new warder to look after Ruatha Hold while the baby grows up. As Philar prepares to fly out, Lessa goes to say goodbye to the watchware who has been cowering away from the enormous dragons. However, just as she's walking away, the old beast gets confused and lunges at Falar, the one who is trying to take his mistress away. Lessa commands it not to kill, and it falls mid-leap, falling hard to the ground and dying. Although Falar is disgusted by the ugly old thing, Lessa cradles its head, and the dragons let out a, quote, an eerie, hair-raising, barely audible, high-keening note that signifies the passing of one of their own, unquote. Eventually, the tribute ends, and Lessa climbs onto the dragon's back with Falar. Hold tightly to my arms, he says, and the wing takes flight before blinking between. Between is a placeless place of utter cold and darkness. In the time it takes a man to cough three times, the dragon has teleported to its destination. Lessa merely gasps (gasps) in surprise, and Falar can feel her heart pounding where his arms press against her ribs. But she handles the experience well, much to Nemeth's approval. And Lessa is thrilled to soar above the bowl of Benden Weir, a hollow mountain that was once a volcano and is now riddled with caverns where men and dragon live. All the dragons head home, and Nemeth lands on his own ledge, scored from thousands of clawed landings. The humans dismount, and Falar leads Lessa through the corridor at the back of the cavern to his quarters. He has lived here ever since his bronze reached maturity, and... Having been born in Benden, he's never been away for so long, so it feels good to be home. In order to give Lessa some privacy, he immediately leaves to take Nemeth to the feeding grounds. 
Falar steps onto the dragon's forearm to be lifted down to the feeding ground, while Nemeth brags that Lessa doesn't trust Falar, but likes him. Why should she be afraid of you? Falar asks teasingly. Your cousin to the watchwear, who was her only friend. The dragon indignantly states that he and his fellows paid tribute to the creature only because its loyalty was very dragon-like, not because they are closely related species. Fenor and Kanth are also at the feeding ground. The hatching is due at any hour, Fenor says. They contemplate the future while watching the brown and bronze dragons swoop down, snatch herd beasts, and lift their meals up to distant ledges for bloody feasting. Lighthole was overwhelmed by the summons, Fenor continues, and sends you all honor and respect. He will do well at Ruatha. Both men hope that having a hold to look after will be some comfort and responsibility in the wake of a lost dragon companion especially in the challenging times ahead, as Fax's other holds are now up for grabs. In other news, the other bronze riders are back. Weirleader Ragul has found five, and Solel has two, but Flar is still certain he found the one. Kinet and Tibor are also returning from the west with candidates. Flar and Nemeth return to their weir cave, and the dragon settles in to sleep after his meal. He looks at Falar with faceted eyes set into his wedge-shaped head and closes one set of eyelids after another as his eye ridges are scratched. Falar is all softness as he looks at his dragon, who he's been with for twenty turns. Chapter 7 By the golden egg of Ferranth, by the weirwoman, wise and true, breed a flight of bronze and brown wings. Breed a flight of green and blue. Breed riders, strong and daring, dragon-loving, born and hatched. Flight of hundreds, soaring skyward, man and dragon fully matched. Meanwhile, Lessa has her first bath in a very long time, waiting until she is sure Falar will be at the feeding grounds for a while. She is amazed to be standing in Bend and Weir, a place she's always heard about but never been although she's not entirely sure what a weirwoman does. Her exchanges with Nemeth, for she can understand the dragons even easier than the watchwear, indicated that the role was something special, though she was simply a contender. At the back of the chamber is a bathing room with a pool of natural hot spring water bubbling up from below. She scrubs herself raw with cleansing sand and then sets about detangling her hair. Once dressed in clean clothes, Lessa hears the return of man and dragon, but pauses on her way at the sight of herself in a mirror. She's actually somewhat pretty. How amazing it is to be clean. Going to the curtain that separates sleeping chamber from cavern, Lessa stumbles upon the unexpected sight of Falar gently smiling at sleeping Nemeth. For the first time, she begins to understand the deep bond. When Falar turns to see her, he is momentarily surprised and pleased. Hmm, you wash up. Pretty, yes, almost pretty, he says, coming over. How could one guess, after all, what was under the grime of ten full turns, I would say? Displeased with his examination, Lessa has to keep herself from punching the grin off his face. Calling down a hidden shaft, Falar orders food and drink to be sent up from the kitchens. He says they must eat now, as the hatching is bound to begin at any moment, though he has Lessa dress the wound on his shoulder he got from fighting facts earlier. Lessa is nervous to hear that the hatching will be soon, but manages to patch him up and to partake in the tray that is delivered up the shaft. There is also a pitcher of hot claw, the Pernese tea. It's a feast to her impoverished eyes, 
but Falar is angered by the measly spread that shows how little the holds think of the weir these days, sending worse and worse foodstuffs in their tithes. Suddenly, Falar becomes serious. Listen to me, he says. You must not show a moment's fear at whatever happens in the hatching ground, and you must not let her overeat. For the first time, Lessa sees Falar as a person, not just as the symbol of dragon riders. She realizes that, quote, his coldness was caution, not lack of emotion. His sternness must be assumed to offset his youth, for he couldn't be that much her senior in turns. There was a blackness about him that was not malevolent. It was a brooding sort of patience. Heavy black hair waved back from a high forehead to brush his shirt collar. Heavy black brows were too often pulled together in a glower, or arched haughtily as he looked down a high-bridged nose at his victim. His eyes, an amber, light enough to seem golden, were all too expressive of cynical emotion or cold hauteur. His lips were thin, but well-shaped, and in repose almost gentle. Why must he always pull his mouth to one side in disapproval, or in one of those sardonic smiles? Handsome he must be considered, she supposed candidly, for there was a certain compelling air about him that was magnetic." Lessa listens, for Falar truly doesn't want her to be afraid of what's to come. He wants her to succeed. He even admits that she did well at Ruatha, though she half-starved herself in the process based on how thin and tiny she is. He even seems to admire how nice she looks washed, despite her staticky hair post-bath. Just then, an unearthly keening filled the chamber. Philar jumps into action, getting Lessa stripped and dressed again in the traditional white robe of a candidate. Then they hop on Nemeth to spiral down to the bowl of the weir below and join the throngs of people heading into the hatching grounds. Humans and dragons alike find places to watch in the enormous space filled with ledges. On the sands below are ten monstrous mottled eggs that are rocking and pulsating. Beside the body of dead Queen Nemorth is a raised platform where the golden egg has been placed. Remember Lessa, Falar says, looking into her eyes one last time, then leaving her. Nemeth also rumbles encouragement as he glides off to find his place. Other women like Lessa are deposited on the sands, and they huddle together in fear. She judges them for their tears, though her heart is also jumping out of her chest. Then the girls are screaming as the other eggs hatch, revealing huge baby dragons stumbling around on awkward legs. A semicircle of young boys, many of them only 10 or 11, are presented to the hatchlings. Several of them are knocked aside by the reptiles, some even walked over with clawed feet. But then the baby dragons lock eyes with a boy of their choice, and impression is made. As one dragon finds his lad, another goes to the bleeding boy, whimpering concern. One by one, the smiling boys and their crooning hatchlings leave the hatching grounds, guided by blue riders. The boys left standing are carried away by green riders. Lessa focuses on the golden egg rocking in the sand. It cracks, and the gathered candidates scream and cry. The dragons in the hall hum as their new queen breaks out of her shell, staggering, flapping, bumping her nose in the sand. She glows a bright golden color. Though silly and clumsy, her head is as big as Lessa's torso. Who knew how big a creature like that would grow to be? The little queen abruptly lunges forward and grabs a girl, shaking her and discarding her. Another she jumps on, raking her claws along the girl's front. The other women scatter. Annoyed and horrified, Lessa steps towards the piteously crying beast and turns the enormous head to look her in the eye, and found herself lost in that rainbow regard. Quote, A feeling of joy suffused Lessa, a feeling of warmth, tenderness, 
unalloyed affection, and instant respect and admiration flooded mind and heart and soul. Never again would Lessa lack an advocate, a defender, an intimate, aware instantly of the temper of her mind and heart of her desires. How wonderful was Lessa, the thought intruded into Lessa's reflections. How pretty, how kind, how thoughtful, how brave and clever. Mechanically, Lessa reached out to scratch the exact spot on the soft eye ridge, unquote. Despite the injured woman, Lessa is filled with love for this baby dragon that telepathically informs her that she is very, very hungry. The hatchling also informs Lessa that her name is Rameth. Oblivious to the bronze dragons watching them, the couple follow the weirlings out of the cavern. Now she is Lessa of Pern, weirwoman to Rameth the Golden. Part 2, Chapter 8 Seas boil and mountains move, sands heat, dragons prove, red star passes. Stones pile and fires burn, green withers, arm pern, guard all passes. Starstone watch, scan sky, ready the weirs, all riders fly, red star passes. After two years living in Benden Weir with her golden dragon Rameth, Lessa is officially bored and frustrated. She spends her days memorizing ballads, since she is the new keeper of the records, and senior bronze writers Ragul and Salel work tirelessly to instruct her. Well, Salel nods off half the time, but Ragul never lets her forget how important the rules are. If a queen isn't meant to fly, why does she have wings? Lessa asks him, trying to contain her anger in order to understand the traditions she's being forced to learn. Queens don't fly, Rugul says flatly. Except to mate, Salel adds before dozing off again. Set in their ways, they don't want to answer Lessa's questions. They want her to recite ballads and write them out word for word on her slate. Her only consolation is the secret knowledge that she can speak to any dragon in the weir, while everyone else is only in telepathic communication with their own bonded beast. Rugul and Salel are focused solely on tradition after spending decades with the last weirwoman, inactive Jorah, and her sleepy queen Nemorth. They don't even really explain to Lessa what the ballads mean. They just care if she knows them. She has to wonder on her own, especially about lyrics that discuss the Red Star that Ragul and everyone else seems convinced will never drop deadly threads ever again. Falar is the only one who believes, the only bronze rider who still drills his wing on chewing firestone and breathing fire. Lessa is frustrated with Ragul for his overabundance of discipline and his choices as weir leader. He seems to believe that if no one outside the weir sees a dragon rider, they'll have no reason to become annoyed and stop tithing. The dragons don't even patrol the holds and craft halls anymore, sticking to the unpopulated regions of the northern continent. But there's no removing Ragul now, since his dragon Hath flew Namorth during her last mating flight, which makes him weir leader until further notice. The weir looks to those whose dragons produce the next generation of hatchlings. Her mind returns to Falar, who endlessly agitates yet intrigues Lessa. She's actually learned quite a lot from him. Though he can't interfere with Weir Leader Ragul's lessons, he can drop a phrase here or there that clears some of the fog. Lessa finds herself becoming annoyed with Falar for failing to become Weir Leader himself. His bronze dragon Nemeth is the biggest on Pern. Was it Falar's lack of initiative? Why doesn't he spring into action? Why does he hang back while Ragul drags them all down? It seems counterintuitive to all his grand words back when he found her at Ruatha Hold on search. 
She wonders about the red star again. The finger rock on the mountain ridge above Bendenweir points to the sun, which seems to balance on the rock on the solstice. Next to it sits the star stone, which has a circle carved into it for reasons she had not been taught. And to make matters more confusing, the old ballads sing about the weirs, plural, not just Bendenweir, getting ready for the red star to pass close to Pern. She still thinks about that morning she woke up and went out into the courtyard to see the star shining in the east. It has gotten bigger in the sky, more visible in the daylight, over these past two years as Rameth has grown. Lessa smiles to herself when she thinks of her dragon, her wonderful lifelong companion. The relationship is the one thing that's kept her here when Ragul insists she stay in her own quarters and do nothing but study. The one thing that prevents her from returning to Ruatha to oust Lady Gemma's son to take it back for herself. She wants to do more with Rameth than enjoy their bond. She wants to fly, to go between. Other queens have done it, as evidenced by songs like The Ballad of Moretta's Ride. Unable to take this boredom and frustration any longer, Lessa reaches out to Salel's dragon, Twenth, who is happy to call his rider away for her. The older man wakes up from his doze and hurries off. Before she can get rid of Regul, the head woman of the lower caverns, Menora, comes into the records room. The weir woman is in charge of domestic life in the weir, so Menora has come with an update, and Lessa is glad to see her. The report isn't good. Benden Weir is very low on winter provisions, having exhausted most of them the last couple winters. Long ago, each of the six weirs had three holds each to provide tithes to sustain them. But now Benton Weir is the only one left to support, yet very few holds send anything. Mostly, their three main hold neighbors send their worst produce. Most of what the weir gets from them is fish. No variety of grains, meats, or vegetables. Sometimes the women of the weir are carried out to go berry and nut collecting by dragon riders, and Lessa wonders if she might partake in this activity or otherwise help. But Menorah insists that Lessa must remain here, Though very annoyed that everyone keeps telling her to stay put, but never really saying why, Lessa tries to think of a way to solve the weir's problem quietly. She decides to borrow a dragon man to do some more thorough foraging. First, she considers Fenor, who is Falar's half-brother and Menorah's son. Would be a good choice, but perhaps she should choose a bronze rider rather than a brown wing second, so they will be more free to get away from the weir. Kinnet is young and impressionable, for example, she hates that Benden Weir seems to have become as shabby as Ruatha Hold, and she plans to turn that around. If only they had a proper leader. Again, she thinks of Falar and is angered by his inaction. He wants to see a strong weirwoman? Fine. She'll be as grand as he teased her she could be. One day she'll tell him that she can speak with his precious Nemeth as easily as she can with Remeth, and then he'll have a shock. She'll be the one grinning then. Rameth wakes up, and Lessa runs to her dragon, rubbing oil on flaking skin where the queen has grown, even bigger than a brown. For a while, she is consumed with the wonderful work and conversation that is carrying for her dragon, when suddenly she notices that Falar has come calling. She hates the way the handsome man leans against the doorway in his warehide gear that protects him from the cold of between. He greets Rameth and tells Lessa about coastal flooding happening at Telgar, and how deep the swamps of Igen have become. Though Falar seems almost pleased by these events, the meaning is lost on Lessa. The two humans talk, banter, and squabble a while before Rameth insists she is starving. So can they please get going so she can have her bath already? They all head down to the feeding grounds. Lessa rides Falar on the menth and watches sadly as Rameth clumsily drifts down to catch a meal. 
Nemeth says to assure you she'll be more graceful when she gets her full growth, Falar says. But the young males are growing just as fast and they're not... Lessa stops, not wanting to confide in Falar too much. They don't grow as large and they're constantly practicing, he reminds her. Oh, to fly. Lessa laments her lack of freedom as she scrubs her dragon, just as she used to scrub the floors of Ruatha Hold, though Rameth is much better company. While the queen soaks, they hear the announcement of the Tithe train coming in, probably coming from one of the three loyal holds. The loyal ones will be protected when the Red Star passes, Falar says, mostly to himself. Les is bemused by his certainty, though she can't deny that she feels the menace too. She can feel the dragons shuffling restlessly in the early morning when the Red Star is its brightest in the east. Meanwhile, Rameth heads to the feeding ground and devours six bucks before Lessa makes her stop, and they return to their cavern for the growing dragon's nap. Soon after, she receives word that Lytol of Rewatha Hold sent the weir provisions and updates. Falar makes sure the messenger gets a nice long look at the impressive sleeping queen dragon while Lessa reads the parchment skin. Lytol's message warns that trouble is brewing with the Lord Holders after Fax's demise. This is doubly concerning since the Holds have been doing very well this turn, making it obvious how little the Weir has received of this global wealth. As the messenger leaves, Fenora joins Lessa and Filar in the council room, telling them that Lytol was very generous, but that his men still grumble about having to give the Weir so much. The disillusionment with dragon men continues. Bronze riders Ragul, Solel, Denor, Tabor, and Kinet come hurrying in, and a heated debate starts about whether the weir can last through the winter. Much to Lessa's frustration, Falar doesn't use this as an opportunity to point out Ragul's poor management, instead de-escalating and stating that Lytol's contributions should get them through. The weir is not yet reduced to raiding and bartering for what they need. At one point, Lessa tries to push Tabor into action, but Falar catches on and stomps on her foot. Ragul gains control of the room, insisting everything stay the same. They will focus on training the new riders and upholding traditions. Chapter 9 Honor those the dragons heed, in thought and favor, word and deed. Worlds are lost and worlds are saved, from those dangers dragon braved. Dragon man, avoid excess. Greed will bring the weir distress. To the ancient laws adhere, prospers thus the dragon weir. Fenor has come to find Lessa. Although he is usually a good-humored man, with a little of his half-brother's reserve, today he is very angry with her. Falar has discovered that Lessa manipulated bronze rider Kinet into going on raids, and the young man has gone overboard, making many holds angry with not just him, but the weir and all its dragon riders as well. He wonders why she chose someone so inexperienced and not himself or some other capable wing second to go on these errands. As they argue, Lessa is sorry to antagonize Fenor, since he is a good man who has tried to be kind, despite being known as a bit of a flirt, but she will not stand by and watch the weird deteriorate any further. She wishes she could wake Rameth for an excuse to leave, but the queen is little more than a rock at the moment. Rameth is now bigger than any of the bronzes, the largest dragon on Pern. You don't sneeze without Falar's consent, Lessa says venomously. Fenor laughs. Falar did give you more credit than you deserve, he says contemptuously. Haven't you realized why he must wait? No, Lessa shouts. I haven't. Is this something I must divine by instinct like the dragons? By the shell of the first egg, Fenor, no one explains anything to me. 
Lessa suggests that Falar was a coward for allowing Rigul to become weir leader, and Fenor defends his wing leader and half-sibling. First off, he explains that the Red Star usually passes close to Pern once every 200 turns of the seasons, but this time seems to have stayed away for twice that time. Only a few people in Pern believe that the Red Star will make a pass this time, and threads will once again fall from the sky. The only thing that can kill them is dragon fire that burns them before they fall to the lush ground below. Secondly, Falar and Fenor's father Falan was training his son to be a good, mindful weir leader before he was killed. Falar was too young to do anything when Ragul's dragon Hath flew with Queen Namorth and became weir leader, thus losing his chance back then. Ramoth is full grown, ready for her first mating flight, Fenor says firmly. When she flies, all the bronzes will rise to catch her. The strongest does not always get the queen. Sometimes it is the one everyone in the weir wants to have win her. The older riders wanted Ragul. They couldn't stomach a 19-year-old over them as weir leader, son though he was to Falan. So, Hath got Namorth, and they got Ragul. They got what they wanted, and look what they've got. Lessa realizes she was wrong to push Kinnett into raiding, that it may already be too late to mend the Weir's relationship with the Holds after her meddling. She was too confident in her abilities after being Fax's undoing. The very fate of Pern seems to hang in the balance now. Before anything can be done about the situation, the dragons outside begin excitedly calling to each other, and Lessa runs out to see what's going on, finding Ramoth still deeply asleep. Rugul and other bronze riders come running in, and she doesn't like the excited looks on their faces. Everyone reports that their dragons, Hath, Binth, Orth, and so on, are blooding their kills, gorging themselves without weighing themselves down with meat. Only Falar and Kinnett are missing, since Lessa pushed Kinnett to go raiding, and Falar went to fetch him. It dawns on Lessa that her beautiful golden dragon has reached maturity and is about to go on her first mating flight, and the older bronze riders intend to seize power during the event without the younger men present. Repelled by Ragul and the others, Lessa frantically calls for Nemeth in her mind, calling him and Falar back. Meanwhile, Ragul indicates Ramoth. She will wake, he says. She will wake and rise ill-tempered. You must allow her only to blood her kill. I warn you, she will resist. If you do not restrain her, she will gorge and cannot fly. Fenor is infuriated by what is happening, after so many years supporting his half-brother, only to see him once again excluded from this opportunity. Though Lessa tries to threaten Ragul by saying she'd rather take Ramoth between to die than let his bronze half fly her, he is not intimidated. He and the others know there is no way to direct the dragons when they get worked up. She will have very little control of the situation. Good afternoon, Falar says from the doorway with Knet. Nemeth informs me that the bronzes blood their kill. How kind of you to call us in for the spectacle. Everyone looks over in shock, not knowing who called them. And though Lessa often quarrels with Falar, she is extremely relieved to see him. A moment later, she senses that Golden Ramoth has woken up and is ravenously hungry, and in an exceptionally bad mood. Fenor stays by her side as Lessa tries to keep the dragon from going on a feeding frenzy, barely managing to keep enough of a hold on their bond to ensure Ramoth bloods her kill. The wonderful hatchling is now a screaming demon, and Lessa is all but overwhelmed by Ramoth's vicious mating instinct. As Ramoth sucks blood from the bucks, the weir is silent. Then all at once, the queen takes to the air. She is bigger than any of the bronzes, and they pump their wings to chase after her. During the flight, Lessa is hardly aware of her own body, caught up in Ramoth's mind. The queen races and teases the bronzes, until only three are still on her tail. Ragul's Hath, Tabor's Orth, and Falar's Dement. 
As she free-fall dives past them, Nemeth grabs her, and the final dance begins. Lessa almost faints from the soaring power of the experience, only now realizing that she and Fular are together to experience this moment alongside their dragons, like a tidal wave of emotion and desire. It's their job to keep Rameth and Nemeth from losing themselves so completely that they might fatally blink between, then bring them home. Chapter 10 Dragon man, dragon man, between thee and thine, share me that glimpse of love greater than mine. Falar wakes up to a happy dragon and the knowledge that he is now leader. Lessa has disappeared into the bathing room, though, and Nemeth reports that the Red Star is getting closer to being visible through the eye rock, at which point they will know if Threadfall is coming. He will have to deal with that as well as the Weir, the Angry Lord Holders, and the fact that Lessa is a firecracker of a Weir woman who he needs on his side. Reports come in that many Lord Holders have gathered at the foot of the Benden Mountains with armies, intending to punish the Dragon Men for raiding and for being parasites. Ragul is trying to placate them, but Falar will have none of that. The time for waiting is done, and he is ready to seize control. I, Falar, Nemeth's rider, am Weir leader now, he tells the older man. He calls all the bronze and brown riders into the council room to discuss who is gathered on their doorstep. Telgur, Nabol, Fort, and Karun. Over a thousand men are with them, with weapons and riding beasts. While Dinol is outraged and tempted to use a little firestone on the army, Falar reminds him that dragon men exist to protect Pern, not hurt its people. No, they will not attack, but they will remind the common folk how big and scary dragons are after so many years keeping out of the holder's way. It is now time to re-educate them, Falar says. In the weeks it took to march here, the tired lords and soldiers probably forgot that dragons can teleport between places, and thus left their homes with slim defenses. Lessa chuckles wickedly <laughs> as he describes his plan to kidnap the lord's wives and bring them safely to the weir. Lessa is sent to welcome the terrified newcomers, while Falar gathers the wings of dragons. He has everyone's support, though Ragul feels he is overstepping. Morale is high after Nemeth and Rameth's incredible mating flight, and everyone is ready to be proud to be a dragon man again. As everyone flies out, Falar sees that Lessa has treated the lord's wives to a show, bringing them to watch a couple little green dragons capture and devour their meals. He makes the conscious choice to leave her behind as the dragons blink between to meet the Lord Holders. Chapter 11 From the weir and from the bowl, bronze and brown and blue and green, rise the dragon men of Pern, aloft on wing, seen then unseen. On the ground, Lord Lorad of Telgur is less sure than his fellows about the blasphemous act they are committing by attacking a dragon weir. Then again, he can't deny that it seems to have outlived its usefulness. He and other holders are expected to support the dragon men, to forgive the ridiculous search that had claimed his own sister Kylara, and to forget the recent pilfering of goods. No, the weir must understand that it does not sit on top of the world anymore. However, Larad is almost as disconcerted by Lord Marin's behavior as he is with the Weirs. He is a harsh man who took control after Fax died. Just then, the lords are buffeted by a piercing cold wind and look up to see a rainbow of dragon wings appear above them. By the void that spawned us, Larad thinks. I'd forgotten dragons are so big. Miscalculation number one, those beasts can teleport. Miscalculation number two, they are terrifying to the riding beasts Larad and the rest are sitting on, trying to get control of the reins. 
Falar and the others settle onto the ground. Nementh is quite enjoying the show, better than any dragon games. The new weir leader approaches the leading lords, recognizing antagonistic Marin and appreciating Larad's calm demeanor. He hears their complaints, then puts forth his demands. You will turn and go back to your holds. You will then go into your barns and among your herds. You will make a just and equable tithe. This will be on its way to the weir within three days of your return. When the lords protest, Falar calls for Wing Second to Sum, and a wing of dragons flies close to reveal the captive wives riding with them. Larad in particular is unsettled by the sight, for he is recently married and proud of the little person he loves for not screaming the way the others do. He leads the way in retreat. On top of his previous demands, Falar instructs the lords to clear their holds of greenery, for the red star is getting bigger in the sky and threads will soon fall. Everyone suddenly looks up in astonishment, and Falar follows their gaze to see Lessa and Rameth flying above them all. The dragon's golden hide shines in the sun. It's an impressive sight, not just because Rameth is the largest dragon alive, but because Lessa has dressed in flowing white to make a lasting, glorious impression. The dragons hum in reverence to their queen. Though Falar takes advantage of everyone's awe, he is beyond angry that Lessa has brought the planet's only queen dragon out into the dangerous open skies. As they return to the bowl of the weir, Nementh calmly tells him that Lessa and Rameth will do as they choose, and Falar had better get used to it and train them or they'll be liable to go between on their own. Recognizing his anger and anxiety, Falar allows himself to see how beautiful the sight of Lessa and Rameth flying truly is. He remembers his own first flight. Lessa is a remarkable, indomitable spirit. As bronze and gold dragons land, Lessa lifts her chin in defiance as Falar comes over to her. But she is shaken by his broad smile. Queens can too fly, she says, not sure what to say if not her prepared speech. Of course they can fly, Falar says, full of pride and respect. That's why they have wings. Part 3. Dustfall. Chapter 12. The finger points at an eye blood red, alert the weirs to sear the thread. Falar is still struggling to get Ragul on his side. The old bronze rider is convinced that no thread shall ever fall again, not after 400 quiet turns of the seasons. While Falar accepts that as a possibility, he refuses to let their guard down, especially not when the red star sat squarely in the hole of Irock this very morning. Ragul, meanwhile, thinks himself the superior weir leader who taught Lessa to be the most magnificent weir woman in a long time, proficient in all the teaching ballads and sagas. He's sure Lessa prefers Falar only because he discovered her on search. There is, you know, Ragul, incontrovertible evidence to support my conclusions, Falar says. The finger rock points at an eye blood red. Don't quote me versus I taught you as a weirling, Ragul snaps back. Pilar points out that either the thread will fall, or the dragon men are as the Lord said, nothing but useless parasites. Everyone must follow him into preparation for threadfall, or leave Bend and Weir entirely. Pilar has already begun to disrupt Weir life with new ideas. He is sending dragons out on search for boys, since there are few young men in the lower caverns of the Weir, and he's sure hold and craft hall boys will do just as well. He is sending more and more patrols out to watch the weather, to keep an eye on tithe trains. He is making sure dragons are being sent to the holds to check for dangerous greenery near human residences. 
He is ordering more Firestone from the mines to stock up. He is even sending wing seconds to the abandoned weirs in hopes of finding records that will help them predict Threadfall. Falar returns to the chamber he shares with Lessa, where pregnant Rameth sleeps, though the dragons have all been restless lately. He is still trying to figure out his relationship with Lessa, for they are roommates and bedmates and workmates, yet she remains out of reach emotionally. Lately, she's been especially touchy since he hasn't been able to keep his promise about teaching her how to fly between. She is also frustrated not to have been called to see the Red Star through Irock, but is cheered up by the temptation of a lesson today. You mean it? she asks eagerly. Yes, my dear weirwoman, I mean it, Falar says teasingly. I will teach you to fly between today, if only to keep you from trying it yourself. From the amused look in Lessa's eye, he can tell she's thought about it. First, the two sit down to a meal, and Falar admires the way little Lessa flits around the clean room, so different from the previous weir woman who encouraged sloth in the weir. He privately admits that he is jealous of the look in her eye Lessa has when she is with Rameth, the love she shows only to the queen dragon, and is determined to one day gain such trust for himself. He frequently notices her dark braid, her narrow face, her cunning eyes. Menorah called me to witness the birth of Kylara's child, Lessa says casually. Equally casually, Flora acknowledges this happy occasion. He knows that Lessa suspects he is the father of the child, for Kylara has seduced many dragon men since arriving in the Weir after the same search that brought Lessa here. Like many, Kylara found the more relaxed nature of men and women's relationships in the Weir was more to her taste, and she has taken full advantage of it. Falar is somewhat pleased by Lessa's slight territoriality, though she might simply be trying to find out how much of a rake he is. Conversation inevitably slides back to the Red Star, for they are the two people most concerned about it. Lessa is angered by anyone who doesn't think the star shining through the eye rock is not proof. Though she doesn't exactly trust Falar, whose every move has been towards his goal of getting the weir back on track, she trusts Ragul even less. Lessa tells Falar of that strange morning she had two turns ago, before search came to Rawatha Hold, and she felt a great menace coming from the east. He listens quietly as she speaks of it, how the only other time she'd felt like that was the night Fax invaded her family's home. Before Falar can figure out how to comfort her, which he very much wants to do, Nemeth tells him that Lessa's mental anguish is so strong that it is rousing Rameth from sleep. When the queen does wake, he has to beat down his envy as Lessa rushes to Rameth's side to show her a sweet smile. He also has to ignore the way Nemeth seems to be laughing at him internally. The two dragons and two riders head down to the feeding grounds, and Falar once again marvels at the queen's size, half a wing bigger than Nemeth and twice as big as Nemorth was. While the queen eats, Falar explains the basics of flying between. A dragon only knows where to go if the location is clearly pictured in both theirs and their riders' minds. So it's best to use landmarks, such as the Star Stone above Benden Weir, where the Finger Rock and Eye Rock sit. In order to go somewhere new, the instructor relays the mental image to their dragon, who sends it to the Weirling's dragon, who then gives it to the Weirling. This is drilled many times. It's only done while flying, since it's best to appear in open air, for it is possible to entomb oneself in solid rock. Nemeth is pleased with the lesson, and Lessa gives him an affectionate pat. Again, Falar has to hide his jealousy. Soon enough, Rameth is finished eating for herself and her eggs, and they are off. Dressed in thick werehide riding gear, they ascend into the chill mountain air above the Starstone. Lessa is exhilarated and excited, pleased by how much time is saved by the fact she can get the coordinates directly from Nemeth without having to wait for the dragon relay. 
The dragons fly to the far end of the lake. Then, as Lessa concentrates on seeing the star stone from a certain angle in her mind's eye, they blink into the bone-penetrating cold of between to emerge again above the star stone. It is extremely simple, Rameth tells Lessa, a little disappointed. Lessa is triumphant. When Nemeth says to repeat the maneuver and end up by the lake, she and Rameth do so at once. However, both Falar and Nemeth are very frustrated, telling her that she must never make the jump without a clear picture, lest she lose both herself and the last remaining queen on Pern to between. Lessa wonders bitterly if Falar is more worried about her or the gold dragon. They spend a long time doing drills, teleporting to different spots around Bend and Weir and all the way to Bend and Hold. Tomorrow they will do distance jumping. Impatient, Lessa decides that there is one place she needs no visualizing and sends Rameth a picture of Ruatha Hold as it looks from above. Before anyone can stop them, they are gone. The jump takes longer than the usual three-cough time span she's used to, but they emerge into the air above Ruatha. Lessa is pleased, but puzzled. The air feels oddly warm for the season. Before she can decide what feels off, she looks down to see invaders crawling up the cliffs. The watchguard turns a blind eye as they penetrate the fortress. Hovering with Rameth, Lessa tries to see who it is, and is horrified to realize she's seeing Fax, the lord who is long dead, who long ago killed Lessa's family and took control of Ruatha. The watchwear senses the mighty dragon's presence and does not sound the alarm, and Lessa sees a young girl run out into the courtyard to hide in the watchwear's lair. The reason she woke up all those turns ago was because her older self was here to unsettle her into waking. Lessa pushes Rameth to return to the Starstone at Bend and Weir, only to find Falar and Nemeth gone, no doubt having gone to Ruatha to look for her. So, Lessa tries again to picture Ruatha as it is now, not how she remembers it from her childhood. They emerge from between, expecting stern words, only to see a young woman walk out into the courtyard and look to the east. Again, Lessa and Rameth return home, and soon are joined by a very, very angry Falar and Nemeth. They return to the weir, and Falar is ready to give her the tongue-lashing of a lifetime. But he quickly sees what bad shape Lessa is in. He carries her off to the couch, covers her with fur blankets, and gets her a hot cup of claw to drink. As Lessa calms down and explains, Nemeth backs up her story with images Rameth sent him. The discovery of jumping between times is so incredible and possibly helpful that the gears in Falar's mind start turning. He puts his arm around Lessa and forces her to drink the hot tea until her shaking stops. The real horror of the situation is that Lessa fears she is the cause of her family's death. By flying her dragon there, the watchware did not sound the alarm, and Fax was able to slay everyone. Falar has completely forgiven her for acting alone, afraid for her sanity. He points out that Fax carefully planned that attack and bribed a guard to step aside, and snuck at first light when a watchware goes into its lair anyway. Lessa did not harm anyone by going back in time, aside from her own nerves. To the contrary, her presence woke the Lessa of the past and sent her fleeing, saving her own life. Rameth points out that everything has already happened, so there's no changing it now. There was nothing different they could have done. The same is true of her second jump to that day soon before she met Falar. Trusting that Lessa will be more careful next time, Falar and Nemeth fly off to do an experiment after discussing how simple it was for Rameth to jump between times. You wish to try Lessa's trick? Nemeth asks. Falar confirms and thinks of a day to revisit. They jump to the day when Ragul became weir leader after Falar's father died. 
Young Man and Young Dragon had felt utterly dejected. Seeing their younger selves is such a shock that Nemeth quickly jumps back to their own time and returns to the comfort of the Queen's Cavern. Chapter 13 Rise high in glory, bronze and gold, dive entwined, enhance the hold. Count three months and more, and five heated weeks, a day of glory and, in a month, who seeks, a strand of silver in the sky, with heat all quickens and all times fly. Lessa and Falar are driving themselves crazy with preparation for Threadfall. While Falar sifts through old smelly records scavenged from the five empty weirs, Lessa begins to wonder if perhaps the only reason the two of them believe the Red Star still poses a danger is that they both visited themselves back in time to give themselves a feeling of dread. I prefer to believe that there is more to life than raising dragons and playing spring games, Falar says after thinking about it. I am not looking in these records for reassurance. I'm looking for solid facts. He asks Lessa to trust him, as she once did when he promised she would become Weirwoman. Based on the timetables he has drawn based on how Thread used to fall during previous passes of the Red Star, the dangerous spores should fall from the skies by springtime. Right now, the weather is unusually cold, which they know to be bad for Threads. They would freeze and blow away like dust. But once spring comes, they will know. Aside from the records, Falar has also been examining ancient relics from Fort Weir, the first and oldest of the Weirs. While diagrams have taught him about the Red Star, while other items Fenor found have proven to be too enigmatic to interpret, he can tell that the ancients had better technology than they do today. Even in the last 400 turns, some knowledge of how to better preserve record skins has been lost. The biggest problem with this degeneration is with the empty Weirs. Kern used to have nearly 3,000 dragons to protect it during Threadfall, which can last for six hours at a time. But now they have only Bend and Weir. They simply have to have faith in Rameth's clutches of eggs and give it their all. For this reason, Falar is willing to stray from tradition in many ways to ensure Pern's safety. He's allowing other candidates to be gathered for when Rameth's eggs are laid and hatched, and he's noticed that non-Weir boys like Natan show a lot of potential. He's craft-bred from Nabol, yet Fenoris tells me he can make Kant understand him, Falar says. Oh, that's not hard to do, Lessa says offhandedly. Before Falar can question her about this, they are momentarily distracted before returning to the discussion at hand. Lessa wonders why female greens don't lay eggs, and Falar reminds her that chewing firestone renders them infertile, though given their small size and amorous nature, their clutches probably wouldn't add much. Soon they're distracted again, called to the hatching ground to discover that Rameth has laid her eggs. Lessa feels sad not to have been included in this wonderful moment, but the queen knew what needed to be done. There is even a golden egg. The glorious sight strengthens Lessa. She feels proud of Rameth and hopeful that she will indeed be able to produce the future of dragonkind to fight threads. Galar, I do believe you, Lessa says. Only now? He teases, but his face is all smiles. Chapter 14 Weirmen watch and weirmen learn Something new in every turn Oldest may be coldest too Sense the right, find the true Rameth laid 41 eggs And Falar continues to break tradition With Lessa standing by him The prospective dragon boy candidates Are invited onto the hatching ground sands To touch the eggs and get used to them So they won't be so afraid on the day of impression 
Many of the boys are collected from outside the weir, and most of them are in their late teens. An older rider can become a warrior against Thread as soon as his dragon matures, rather than the dragon having to wait for humans' slower maturation. Even the golden egg is shared with candidates, specifically Kylara, the troublesome, willful woman they hope to set up as weirwoman in one of the abandoned weirs. Some of these practices have raised questions among the Lord Holders, but they mostly seem to be good, especially when Falar decides that the fathers of the candidates should be flown in to witness the event. This will clear away some of the mystery associated with dragon men. And Falar is right. The hatching goes very well. The boys are not frozen with fright, so they jump out of the way of clumsy baby dragon feet, and their fathers get to watch them impress dragons. The hatchlings even seem to go searching for their chosen boys, as if they know who they're looking for. When the baby queen hatches, she immediately goes to the waiting Kylara. The event is over very quickly. Lessa is disappointed that it's already over, but glad that the boy Natan, now Natan, impressed a bronze and that Kylara will soon be out of her hair. Falar is very pleased to have Lessa be possessive of him. Chapter 15 Crack dust, black dust, turn in freezing air, waste dust, space dust, from Red Star Bear. Lessa wakes from terrible forgotten dreams and is relieved when Falar returns from assigning patrols, commenting on how big the dragonettes are getting already. He is determined to get them trained quickly to make sure they don't try anything rash like Lessa did out of boredom and indignation. This leads to the two of them wondering if anyone else has discovered the ability to jump between times, but they don't know how to discreetly find out. None of the records or ballads speak of it, though it is clearly an inherent dragon ability. Fenor comes in to give his report, though he's sputtering from the dust storms of Northern Tillich. He stops talking when he sees the look on his half-brother's face, and both he and Lessa follow Falar to the record room. How long have these storms been going on? Falar demands. Why didn't you report them? Report dust storms? Fenor asks. You wanted to know about warm air masses. How long have these storms been going on? Close to a week, Fenor replies. How close? Though Falar is angry with himself for not realizing it sooner, he jumps into action. It is clear now that Thread have been falling for the past six days unnoticed due to the unseasonably cold weather that kills the spores and causes them to disintegrate into black dust. Crack dust, black dust, Lessa quotes in horror. In The Ballad of Moretta's Ride, the chorus is all about black dust. I don't need to be reminded of Moretta right now, Falar growls. She could talk to any dragon in the weirs. But I can do that, Lessa protests. At first, Falar is incredulous, furious, and hurt that she never shared this with him in the two-plus years they've known each other and lived together. All this time, he's been trying to figure out the best way to coordinate the wings without the rider-to-dragon-to-dragon-to-rider relay. The couple start to get into an emotional fight, but there isn't time for that. According to the timetables, Thread started falling over the rainforests of Neret today at dawn. Falar and Lessa realize they must have the dragons jump between times to catch it mid-air. Rouse the weir, Falar orders. If threads are falling, were falling, at Nerit at dawn, they'll be falling on Karun and Ista right now, because they are in that time pattern. Take two wings to Karun. Arouse the planes. Get them to start the fire pits blazing. Take some weirlings with you and send them to Igen and Ista. Those holds are not in as immediate danger as Karun. I'll reinforce you as soon as I can. And keep Kanth in touch with Lessa. 
On his way out, Falar encounters Ragul and Tasum. Upon hearing what is going on, Tasum runs off to his dragon month, while Ragul sputters at the thought of Thread actually falling. Falar doesn't have time to be smug because he needs Lessa to send out more instructions, as well as get Menorah and the other women of the lower caverns readying ointments for inevitable injuries. Most important, Falar says, if something goes wrong, you'll have to wait till LeBron's is at least a year old to fly Ramoth. No one's flying Ramoth but Nemeth, Lessa says fiercely. Falar hugs and kisses her and is off to the fight. Chapter 16 Wheel and turn, or bleed and burn. Fly between, blue and green. Soar, dive down, bronze and brown. Dragon men must fly when threads are in the sky. With fire sacks tied to his belt, Falara runs to Nemeth, patting himself on the back for the exhaustive patrols he's been sending out across the continent. He vaults to the hovering dragon's neck, and they're off to join the others taking to the air above Benden Weir. The fighters are in flight, and everyone else is running about, preparing numbweed for injuries or filling more fire sacks. Old Sagan and his aging blue direct the dragonettes. Fenor, on brown canth, leads the first wing into a jump between times to catch the morning's falling thread. As Falar joins the other bronzes in formation with more wings, it starts to snow, and he hopes these chill temperatures will continue to protect them until everyone gets used to chasing thread. They make the jump, ending up over the Neret rainforests just after dawn, and look up to see a thickening mist in the early sunlight. Quote, Threads were falling, silent, beautiful, treacherous. Silvery gray were those space-traversing spores, spinning from hard-frozen ovals into coarse filaments as they penetrated the warm atmospheric envelope of Pern. Less than mindless, they had been ejected from their barren planet towards Pern, a hideous rain that sought organic matter to nourish it into growth. One thread, sinking into fertile soil, could burrow deep, propagating thousands in the warm earth, rendering it into black-dusted wasteland. The southern continent of Pern had already been sucked dry. The true parasites of Pern were threads." Unquote. Eighty dragons and riders surge upwards to meet the thread head-on. The dragons swivel their long necks and open their mouths for firestone, which they chew and swallow. Acids in their stomachs churn and produce poisonous phosphine gas which they then belch at the threads, searing them from the sky. Falar is amazed by how magnificent Nemanth is in this moment as he crouches low in his seat to avoid breathing the fire fumes. All around him, dragons of all colors do the same, disappearing between when they are hit with thread in order to freeze and kill the menace when it touches their skin. He is surprised to learn that threadfall is not quite like rain, but comes in patches. It's intensely satisfying to see a clump shrivel into ash. He glances down at the lush landscape below, reminding himself to send foot teams out to do a thorough review of the dragon's work. When someone screams in pain, he finds himself wishing he had the same here-and-now mind as a dragon, so he wouldn't have to remember those screams later. Just then, hot fire alights on Falar's cheek and acid burns into his shoulder. Before he can cry out, Nemeth has brought them between to freeze the thread away. As he bats them off, Falar feels them crumble into dust, but he is still revolted, and the injuries burn. Nemeth croons comfortingly as they return to the fight. Finally, after what feels like a lifetime, the Threadfall moves out over the sea to fall harmlessly into the salty water. Falar has never been so tired. After a final survey of the land to check for any fallen trees, they return home. Chapter 17 
Honor those the dragons heed, in thought and favor, word and deed. Worlds are lost and worlds are saved, from those dangers dragon braved. Lessa watches the wings disappear above the Starstone, then turns her attention back to the Weir. She joins old Sagan with the Weirlings and instructs them to bring the message to all the holds that Thread has begun to fall. They will have their chance to fight in years to come, for a pass of the Red Star is a full 50 turns of the seasons. All of a sudden, the air is again full of dragons and the stink of phosphine. But you just left? Lessa exclaims in her mind. That was two hours ago for us, Nemeth replies tiredly. The women of the lower caverns are quick to apply numbweed and bandages as the dragons land. Each rider tends his dragon first, then allows himself to be worked on. Lessa is somewhat comforted to see Nemeth hovering above it all, since that means neither he nor Falar is badly hurt. He has a moment to land and reassure Lessa, then is off again to answer Fenor's report that they need more Firestone at Karun, where the threads are currently falling. Lessa goes looking for someone to carry more, and old Sagan happily answers the call to action. Watching Blue Tagath take off, Rameth is jealous of all the other dragons. Lessa's mind is in a whirl as she surveys the injured. Mostly riders suffered, some with burns down to the bone, and one in danger of losing an eye. She is at once annoyed and grateful that Falar is so often right about things, for studying long and hard to prepare them for this moment. But how can this go on for 50 long turns? Hopefully the use of Falar's timetables and everyone trusting their dragon's instincts will see them through. Suddenly, a dragon blinks into the air above the Starstone, screaming and falling out of the sky. Rameth takes off and manages to cushion the blue's fall enough to get him and his rider to the ground. It is Tagath and Sagan, and the old dragon rider is badly injured, his face a ruin from thread score. Minora and the others comfort him, but there is little they can do aside from numb the injuries. Too toothless old to flame and too slow to get between, Sagan mumbles. Too old, but dragon men must fly when threads are in the sky. As the brave old man dies... Tagoth shrieks and takes a great leap into the air before disappearing between for the last time. Out of 172 dragons in the weir, 15 men were injured enough to be out of action for the next threadfall, and one pair has died. As he is right about so many things, Philar was right that Lessa now has to look beyond the small world of Ruatha Hold that preoccupied her for so long. She is now weirwoman of the last remaining weir on the planet, the only thing standing between Pern and total annihilation. Though she is badly shaken, she knows that old Sagan was right. Dragon men must fly. Chapter 18 Dragon men must fly when threads are in the sky. Worlds are lost and worlds are saved by those dangers dragon braved. The attack is officially over at high noon after passing through Neret, Neret Bay, and Karun. As Philar and the others come home properly, Golden Rameth welcomes from the Starstone. The weir is quiet as everyone rests and recuperates. Though Sagan was the only fatality, there were another four dragons injured and seven more men. Lessa finishes helping Minora in the caverns and finds Philar still awake in the records room. He's trying to figure out how one underpopulated weir can do the job of six. Even if there were long intervals between passes before, Pern would have had six underpopulated weirs to protect it, not just one. You were not so doubtful before, Lessa says uncertainly. Not until I had actually had an encounter with the threads and reckoned up the numbers of injuries, he replies, angry with himself. 
Falar is overwhelmed by what must be done to keep vigilant, to fight each time threads fall, and to go over the land again on foot afterward. The holds and craft halls must be organized to help, and they must find ways to burn out thread burrows. The records mention people being armed with fire, but there is no explanation for how that was accomplished. Lessa points out that even the ancients weren't always successful. They lost the southern continent, after all, and no one has bothered with it in ages. She also reminds him to have more faith in himself, since it is his timetables and his belief that has gotten them this far. First, we need more dragons, Falar counts. Second, we need them now. Third, we need something as effective as a flaming dragon to destroy threads which have burrowed. Fourth, we need sleep, or we won't be able to think of anything, Lessa adds. Falar laughs and hugs her. You've got your mind on one thing, haven't you? He teases. She pushes at him, snapping, My responsibility as werewoman includes care of you, the weirleader. But you spend hours with blue dragon riders and leave me to Kylara's tender ministrations. Falar says with a grin. You didn't look as if you objected, Lessa says icily. He laughs, <laughs> a needed release. <laughs> Should I open Fort Weir and send Kylara on? He asks. I'd assume Kylara were turns away as miles away from me, Lessa growls. Falar is suddenly speechless and leaps up to pace. Lessa's right. They could send Kylara away in time as well as space. The two of them discuss the matter in a jumbled confusion of ideas, wondering if the southern continent might actually be livable after 400 turns without thread. The spores eat what they can, then blow away, so the land will be free of them by now. Kylara and others could be sent to the past to let some young dragons grow up in order to help in the present. Necessity, or is it jealousy, hatches many a tough shell, Falar says, giving Lessa a wicked grin. She sticks her nose in the air. The good of the weir, she retorts. They decide Lessa and Fenor will take a trip south tomorrow to have a look while Falar deals with the holds and craft halls. It will give Rameth something to do as well, so she's not stuck at home while everyone flies away to fight Thread. Just as Falar and Lessa are about to retire to the bedchamber, they hear steps in the passageway. Falar is angry to be disturbed this late until he sees his half-brother stumbling in. The brown rider looks... wrong. He is not injured, though he sustained a bad thread scoring earlier today, and is oddly tanned. Falar, it's not working out. He gasps. You can't be alive two times at once. He staggers against the wall. I don't know how much longer we can last like this. We're all affected. Some days not as badly as others. Your dragons are all right. It doesn't bother them. But they're riders. All the weir folk. We're shadows. Half alive, like dragonless men. Part of us gone forever. Except Kylara. All she wants to do is go back and watch herself. The woman's egomania will destroy us all, I'm afraid. He sways and almost falls. I can't stay. I'm here already. Too close. Makes it twice as bad. But I had to warn you. I promise, Falar, we'll stay as long as we can, but it won't be much longer. So it won't be long enough, but we tried. We tried. Then he hurries off, half-crouched. Falar and Lessa are left in stunned silence. But he hasn't even gone yet. Lessa gasps. <gasps> Part 4. The Cold Between. Chapter 19. The situation has to be thought through carefully. If Fenor has come back from the past to warn them, then they have no choice but to send him anyway to avoid a paradox. Even if it doesn't do much good, they have to push forward. On top of that, they now know that going into the past is very hard on humans. 
Talar and Lessa were shaken by their own experiences, not just because they saw their younger selves, but because existing in two places is taxing. Nevertheless, even one good clutch from Kylara's golden prittis would help, as would 40 grown-up weirlings. Lessa must go with Fenor to the southern continent tomorrow as planned, without letting him know any of this. As if it is still just an experiment. While they still have until morning, Philar and Lessa continue on to the bedroom. Chapter 20 Weaver, Miner, Harper, Smith, Tanner, Farmer, Herdsman, Lord, Gather, Wingsped, Listen Well, to the Weirman's Urgent Word. Fenor is eager enough to go on the expedition to the southern continent, as well as go back in time ten turns, though he dreads to watch the young bronze riders Natan and Tabor figure out their relationships with Kylara. He's certainly not dealing with her himself. It is well known that Kylara failed to take Fenor to bed when she first arrived at Benden Weir, and has been trying ever since. I hope two bronzes are enough, Falar comments. Prittith may have a mind of her own, come mating time. You can't turn a brown into a bronze, Fenor exclaims, and quickly leaves to escape his half-brother's teasing. Lessa has to stifle her laughter to get up and going on the trip. Falar chooses not to mention this venture to the Lord Holders and craftsmen gathering in the council room. The last to arrive are Marin of Nabol, who is as hostile as ever, and Lytol of Ruatha, whose cheek twitches from the agony of being near dragon men again. Lytol chooses to sit with Master Weaver Zerg, whom he once answered to before his current station. I appreciate you coming, good lords and craftmasters, Falar says. The threads spin once again. He gives a brief report, reassuring Lord Vincent of Nerat that ground crews and low-flying dragons are surveying the rainforests at this very moment. He goes on to explain that patrol flights will be scheduled ahead of each threadfall predicted on the timetables, this time over Telgar of Krom, then over to Ruatha and Nabol. Though Marin wants to protest the likelihood of this predictability, Falar assures him that the records and the teaching ballads have led him to these conclusions. He explains that the threads started falling on schedule, but before anyone realized it, due to the cold spring weather. The lords from areas suffering dust storms are horrified, while Larad of Telgar shows interest in the charts. Falar promises copies for everyone, which will be provided with the help of Master Harper Robinton. The tall man is pleased to be of need after so many years of being stifled by Lord Holders. The Harper Halls are dedicated to not only song and instrument, but also the teaching ballads. They move on to the problem with the weir's numbers. The timetables are necessary for a single weir to do the work of six. So, the holds and craft halls must keep clear of greenery, and ground crews must be sent out to double-check the dragon's work. The idea that there might not be enough dragons frightens some of the holders, who wish to lash out at Falar. But Master Harper Robinton speaks up. You have yourselves to blame, he says firmly. Admit it, one and all. You've paid less honor to the weir than you would your watchwear's kettle. And that not much. But now the thieves are on the heights, and you are screaming because the poor reptile is nigh to death from neglect. Beat him, will you? When you exiled him to his kennel because he tried to warn you? Tried to get you to prepare against the invaders? It's on your conscience, not the weir leaders or the dragon riders, who have honestly done their duty these hundreds of turns in keeping dragon kind alive, against your protests. How many of you have been generous in thought and favor towards dragon kind? Ever since I became master of my craft, 
How often have my harpers told me of being beaten for singing the old songs as is their duty? You earn only the right, good lords and craftsmen, to squirm inside your stony holds and writhe as your crops die a morning. No crops will fall. It's a harper's winter tale. These dragon men leech us of our air and harvest. And now the truth is as bitter as a brave man's fears and as difficult as mockweed to swallow. For all the honor you've done them, the dragon men should leave you to be spun on the threads distaff. The lords of Bitra, Lemos, and Benden protest, stating that they have always been loyal to Benden Weir, as in ancient times. Aye, and you have, Robinton admits slowly. Of all the great holds, you three have been loyal. But you others, as spokesmen of my craft, I know, to the last full stop in the score, your opinion of Dragonkind. I heard the first whisper of your attempt to ride out against the Weir. Where would you be today, good Lord Vincent of Nerot, if the Weir had not sent you packing back, hoping your ladies would be returned to you? All of you actually rode against the Weir because there were no more threads. And now, at this critical moment, you have the incredible presumption to protest against any measures the Weir suggests. Attend what the Weir leader says and spare him your petty carpings. Robinton returns the floor to Falar, who clears his throat and continues on his list of what must be done. He calls on Master Smith Fanderell to ask about finding a way to burn out Threadburrows, and the giant man promises to think on it. They do have an acid called a genethry that might be used on the burrows without ruining the surrounding soil. The Master Farmer also suggests that the sandworms of the Eigen Plains might be capable of eating threads. The Master Miner is happy to be busy digging up Firestone. The Master Weaver remembers seeing a tapestry at Ruatha Hall that depicted some sort of handheld tool that spit fire, and Master Smith Fanderell is intrigued by the idea of a proper flamethrower. The problem is that no one is quite sure what happened to that ancient tapestry after Fax took over six holds, and Falar suggests to the new holders that the tapestry should miraculously turn up if they know what's good for them. As Falar leaves the meeting, he finds a very tan Fenor hanging around in the living room. It is evident that this visitor has been away for a while, but not so long as the one who came stumbling in last night. Success, Fenor says jovially. Though how you knew to send just 32 candidates, I'll never understand. He explains that Pritith laid 32 eggs, no golden queens, but 14 bronzes. Kylara is stirring up trouble and gives their weir leader Tabor a hard time, but they're getting by. Tropical food is plentiful down there. If they weren't living in secret, they'd send a bunch up north. Fenor leaves, and Falar is then joined by Master Harper Robinton, who stayed behind after the meeting. He is a clever, good-hearted man, who is pleased to speak out against the lords as well as to partake in bend and wine. While they sit, Robinton admits he wants to speak to Falar about a strange ballad that has always unsettled him. Now seems the time to re-examine it. He fetches old Sagan's guitar from where it was hung in the council room and plucks an unpleasant tune. Perhaps its unsettling nature was on purpose to make it unforgettable? Gone away, gone ahead, echoes away, die unanswered. Empty, open, dusty, dead. Why have all the weir folk fled? Where have dragons gone together, leaving weirs to wind and weather, setting herd beasts free of tether? Gone, our safeguards, gone, but whither? 
have they flown to some new weir where cruel threads some others fear? Are they worlds away from here? Why, oh why, the empty weir? The ballad, known as the Question Song, is at least 400 turns old when the five weirs were abandoned, soon after the Red Star moved away from Pern and threads stopped falling. No explanation was ever recorded. Neither Robinton nor Falar has ever found an answer in the records. Bend and Weir had to set up a planetary patrol, and that was all they could do. It seems unlikely the Weirs suicided between to escape boredom or create less strain. So where did they go? Robinton drinks some more wine, telling Falar how hard he laughed when an army of holders were turned away by the dragon wings. However, Robinton has gathered much information from in between the lines, and can tell Falar has left out how desperate the current situation truly is. Even Fandarel's flamethrowers and Eigen's sandworms would not tip the scales in their favor. The Red Star will get closer, and the time between Threadfalls will get shorter. Though Falar trusts Robinton to know about the Southern Continent experiment and the jump back in time, it doesn't really help them. It's a dangerous venture. Falar and Lessa suffered from brief trips backward, and Fenor's appearances prove that extended time away from your current time is hard on the body and mind. And there is no way to jump ahead, since you must know where you're going. No dragons can be risked in such an experiment. Chapter 21 Across a waste of lonely tossing sea, where no dragon wings had lately spread, flew a gold and a sturdy brown in spring, searching if the land be dead. Rameth and Kanth jump backwards to Bend and Weir ten turns ago, then teleport to the sea, and from there begin their flight down to the southern continent. The golden dragon sets a quick pace that the brown Kanth has to work hard to keep up with, still upset that she can't fly against Thread with her weirmates. The riders quickly realize that the southern continent is no longer barren. In fact, it is a lush tropical jungle. 400 turns was long enough for seeds to be carried by the wind and birds to repopulate the land with vegetation. The dragons bugle with delight, scaring wary birds in the process. After finding nowhere that looks rocky enough for human habitation, they stop for lunch, though the emptiness of the landscape unsettles them after living their lives in close proximity to other people. Their spirits are lifted when they try a moonflower fruit that's much better than the ones that grow up north, and the dragons are fine without rocky weirs to sleep in, perfectly happy in the sun and sand where they can swim anytime they like. So, the main problem is transporting herd beasts in for food stock and figuring out where people will live. The land has potential for farming, lumber, and more. This is where young dragon riders born to hold and craft haul will come in handy, since they'll be less unsettled without a whole mountain above their heads. When Lessa and Fenor reappear above Bend and Weir after an uncomfortably long time between, they find that Falar has already mobilized people and dragons for the trip south. Back inside, Falar is glad to hear the trip went well and explains that they have to move fast since in this time there are only three days between now and the next Threadfall, when new dragons will be needed. Kylara and Pritith will go south, accompanied by two bronze riders, Fenor, the Weirlings, wing riders to train them, and 32 candidates for future hatchings. Suppose we'd found the continent barren, Fenor asks, astounded. Oh, we'd have sent them back to, say, the High Reaches. Falar says casually. He quickly tells them how the morning's meeting with the lords and craftmasters went, 
then asks for a map of where the southern weir will be set up. No sooner has Lessa drawn it than she collapses. Philar takes her to a couch while he discusses the problem of time jumping with Fenor, warning him to be careful of fatigue and mental decline while he's in the past, to be careful not to cross paths with himself when he pops by to give updates. In a rare demonstration of affection, Philar grips his half-brother's shoulder and wishes him well. Menorah is called to check on Lessa, and they decide that time jumping causes too much fatigue in the young woman. Philar leaves the weirwoman sleeping in order to oversee the departure of those headed south. She is very precious to him, and he wants to keep her well and safe. Philar is called away to Neret, where Master Smith Fanderell is showing how to use a new contraption that deposits a genethrine acid into the ground to dissolve a thread burrow. It works very well. Lord Vincent is in hysterics about trees that have been affected by the burrows. But Falar ignores him since the ground crews and dragons did their jobs well. Still, Falar knows the odds are stacked against them. There aren't enough dragons, even with Fenor's group having gone south, and Fandarel's creation needs time to be developed into something less bulky. Even the useful sandworms aren't efficient enough to make a big difference. According to the records, in the turns before a pass of the Red Star, all the queens in all six weirs would have started laying large clutches of eggs. But they have only been in weir, and the last queen was very small and weak. Robinton has made another visit to the weir, and is dismayed to find Falar in low spirits due to Les's condition, but presses forward with his news. The Harper has found a reference to the Master Harper of 400 turns ago, getting summoned to Fort Weir right before the Great Abandonment but nothing further was recorded. Some weeks later, the Master Harper wrote the question song that was added to the compulsory teaching ballads. It seems the breadcrumbs were left with the Master Harper to leave for their descendants. Lessa joins them, feeling like herself again, waving away help. They update her on what they've been talking about, and her eyes go wide. Gone away, gone ahead, she cries. That's it! All five weirs went ahead! But to when? Falar and Robinton are flabbergasted by the idea, especially since there haven't been any visits like what they got with Fenor while he was in the South. Lessa suggests that someone will have to go back in time and get them, and give them reference points to come ahead. Knowing what she's thinking, Falar angrily tries to put the idea out of her head. How can you consider going back to a win you can't remotely remember? He demands. To a win 400 turns ago. Going back 10 turns left you fainting and half ill. Wouldn't it be worth it? Lessa protests. Isn't Pern worth it? Falar grabs her shoulders. Not even Pern is worth losing you, or Rameth, he says. Lessa, Lessa, don't you dare disobey me on this. The mood is lightened by Rameth stating that she is not afraid to try, though Falar snaps that she is just young. Nemanth replies that he is neither young nor afraid to try. It is simply a longer step. The conversation is put on hold when Lytol arrives at the weir bringing news. Brown rider Barant helps him carry in a rolled rug, which they lay out. It is a tapestry belonging to the Ruatha family that is many hundreds of turns old. It depicts a beautifully woven scene that includes Ruatha hold in the background, dragons in the sky, and flamethrowers being wielded. The techniques used have been lost to time. Even the blue of the sky suggests autumn. Lessa is amazed to see it, since it has been missing since her childhood when Fax invaded. Master Smith Fanderell is fetched, and the gears in his brain start turning after examining the tapestry. When it gets late, Lessa encourages everyone to retire to bed. I distrust the weir woman when she uses that particular docile tone of voice, Falar grumbles. 
Rameth is young, but not that foolish. Everyone leaves, and Falar is left to his thoughts. Chapter 22 Black, blacker, blackest, and cold beyond frozen things. Where is between when there is not to life but fragile dragon wings? Despite Falar's uncertainty, Lessa straps the Ruathan tapestry to Rameth's back in order to return it home to the wall of the Great Hall. He has a busy day overseeing a train of Firestone being shipped in, taking a look at Fandarel's flamethrower prototype, and hearing Ragul's insulted report that Fenor tried to find Falar twice today but refused to leave a message. It's late by the time Falar goes looking for Lessa, only to learn that she stayed at Ruatha a long time staring at the newly hung tapestry before taking flight with her queen dragon. When Nemeth confirms that he cannot hear either of them anywhere, Falar realizes that what he most feared has come true. Quote, Falar gripped the table with both hands, staring at the queen's empty weir. He knew, in the anguished privacy of his mind, where Lessa had tried to go. Unquote. Chapter 23 Cold as death, death-bearing, stay and die, unguided. Brave and braving, linger. This way was twice decided. Lessa and Rameth flew above Ruatha Hold until they reached an angle that matched the tapestry's depiction of the rocky fortress. She keeps in mind the differences between the great doors as they are now versus what the tapestry shows them to look like 400 turns or so ago. There was also no tower, no inner courtyard, and no gate. She remembers the question song and reminds herself how necessary this is. Lessa laughs nervously, then gives Rameth the image for jump between. Quote, The cold was intense, even more penetrating than she had imagined. Yet it was not a physical cold. It was the awareness of the absence of everything. No light, no sound, no touch. As they hovered, long and longer, in this nothingness, Lessa recognized full-blown panic of a kind that threatened to overwhelm her reason. She knew she sat on Rameth's neck, Yet she could not feel the great beast under her thighs, under her hands. She tried to cry out inadvertently and opened her mouth to nothing, no sound in her own ears. She could not even feel the hands that she knew she had raised to her own cheeks. I am here, she heard Rameth say in her mind. We are together. And this reassurance was all that kept her from losing her grasp on sanity in that terrifying eon of unpassing, timeless nothingness. Unquote. at Bend and Weir, Master Harper Robinton is called and finds Falar sitting, devastated and numb, at the table. She's gone, he says flatly. She tried to go back 400 turns. While Falar curses himself for not doing more to stop her, since he knew she was all but unstoppable once she got an idea in her head, Robinton realizes she must have used the details of the tapestry to go back in time. So, off to Ruatha Hold they go. Lytol greets them and lights every candle in the great hall to illuminate the tapestry for them. The warder is equally shocked by Lessa's venture. Falar explains that Nemeth can hear an echo of Kant's mind some ten turns back, but he can't hear anything of Rameth or Lessa. There is nothing between, Falar says in a dead voice. To go between places takes only as much time as for a man to cough three times. Between four hundred turns... Chapter 24 Who wills? 
can, who tries, does, who loves, lives. Les's head is a swirling void of pain, vertigo, and nausea as the mess of the world beyond spins and rolls till she clings to the bed. She hears voices. She tries to relay her message. She feels Rameth nearby. Exhausted, she sinks into nothing again after each attempt at surfacing. Eventually, she wakes to something like reality, and there is a woman there. She introduces herself as Mardra of Fort Weir, but Lessa soon falls back into rambling darkness. Finally, Lessa comes to, and the bed is not spinning beneath her. She is in a large weir cavern with finely made furniture. When they see she is awake, a man and woman come to her bedside. The woman is Mardra from before, and the man says he is Tehran, weir leader of Fort. Lessa's first worry is for Rameth, but the golden dragon is doing just fine, trying to gorge herself until the other queens stop her. You can come, can't you? Lessa asks desperately. Mardra asks, where? Lessa has been going on and on about going somewhere and about the Red Star, but the Red Star has just finished its pass. Lessa realizes she's not making any sense and has some hot claw to help her wake up. She can then take the time to explain everything about jumping between times and everything to do with the abandoned weirs, the long interval, and the question song that led her here. Invade? My family's hold? Mardra asks in horror when she hears about Ruatha. Ruatha has given the weirs many famous weirwomen, Lessa says with pride. Tehran laughs. She's Ruathan, no question, he says. It turns out the tapestry Lessa grew up seeing has only just been commissioned by Mardra's father, a private project. And this is what finally convinces Tehran and Mardra that Lessa speaks the truth. They think there is a good chance that they, as well as the other weirs, will make the jump ahead with her, since they have all begun to realize that the final years of their lives will be spent in boredom, with nothing left to fight, only patrols to run. The holds are already starting to chafe under the weight of supporting weirs without Threadfall. But for now, Lessa must rest while everyone involved is talked into staying quiet about her arrival. The five weirs are quickly in agreement, with only Benden's weir leader being told about what is to happen to help prepare his weir for the coming interval. Plans are set in motion to fully abandon the weirs, as well as to invite the Master Harper for a visit to make sure the breadcrumbs are laid for Lessa to find later. Next, they have to figure out how to jump ahead without merely losing their sanity, as Lessa did. Some people are terrified, since they have no proof from Lessa's time that they made it ahead. But Tehran forges forward. By the egg, it's die slow, doing nothing, or die quick, trying, he says. I confess I'm almost sorry the Red Star dwindles farther from us in the evening sky. We're dragon men, aren't we? Bred to fight the threads? Let's go hunting. Four hundred turns ahead. It is decided that 25 turn jumps should be enough to prevent sickness and, ironically, they can use the position of the red star in the sky as a guide. Every weir has a star stone that provides a reference point in relation to the red star's predictable orbit. By now, Lessa has been away from home for a month and misses Falar more than she thought possible. Her relief when everyone takes flight is so great she almost cries. Chapter 25 The blackest night must end in dawn. The sun dispel the dreamer's fear. When shall my soul's bleak, hopeless pain find solace in its darkening weir? After many jumps between, the five weirs take a break before the final 12-turn push. 
All but four of 1,800 dragons have made it this far, and those who didn't were old. Lessa is struggling more than before because they are now within her lifetime, and she can feel the strain of existing in two places at once. It's different from the terror of hanging suspended in between as long as she did. This is a pull at her very soul, a fatigue she can't put up with for long. She also remembers that she visited herself this same turn, so there could be as many as three of her about. As she becomes more hysterical, Tehran and Mardra get everyone up and going again. Chapter 26 A fleck of red in a cold night sky, a drop of blood to guide them by. Turn away, turn away, turn, be gone. A red star beckons the travelers on. Lytol and Robinton force Falar to eat and drink enough wine for him to let them put him to bed. How can he go on without Lessa? How can they repopulate the planet with just Kylara's Pritith? Falar cries out to Lessa in his mind. When Falar tries to drink himself stupider, Robinton stops him. Man, not even this Master Harper has words enough to express the sympathy and honor he has for you. But you must sleep. You have tomorrow to endure, and the tomorrow after that you have to fight. The dragon men must have a leader. Tomorrow you must send for Fenor and Pritith. Instead of allowing himself to sleep, Falar returns to the door of Ruatha Hold to stare at it a while more. Chapter 27 O tongue, give sound to joy and sing of hope and promise on dragon wing. Lessa and Ramoth blink into existence above Ruatha Weir, and they hurry to land so Lessa can meet those coming out into the courtyard. She's surprised to see Lytol greeting her with the only smile she's ever seen from him. You misjudged the last jump by two days, Lessa, he says. While Lessa is disoriented from all her time travel, Tehran and Mardra understand enough to get everyone airborne again. Tehran's Fidranth leads the way back two days in time to the evening where Falar stands outside the doors of Ruatha Hold. Ramoth deposits Lessa on the ground, then leaps back into the air to join her mate Nemeth on the heights. Lessa is nearly out of her mind and can't do anything as Falar races towards her, grabs her, and crushes her in his embrace. Lessa, Lessa, he mumbles in her ear. When his grief and joy have worked themselves out, he is able to look up and properly make acquaintance with Tehran and Mardra. There are dragons everywhere. Falar is utterly astonished by their numbers, their flamethrowers, and their bravery. We are dragon men, Tehran says. As you are yourself, Falar of Benden, we were told there are threads here to fight, and that's work for dragon men to do in any time. Chapter 28 Drummer, beat, and piper, blow, harper, strike, and soldier, go, free the flame and sear the grasses, till the dawning red star passes. Benden Weir is full of news. The five abandoned weirs are being re-inhabited by their past residents, and Fenor has just come back from the southern continent with 72 fighting dragons. All are exhausted, but happy to be there. Master Smith Fanderell took the flamethrowers brought ahead and is in the process of recreating them. Master Harper Robinton is delighted by the ancestral visitors. Falar and Lessa encounter Rigul, the previous weir leader, in his typical sour mood. 
They can't help but rub it in his face a little that he once said the five empty weirs were a sure sign that no more thread would fall, when in fact the opposite was true. As Falar and Tehran discuss the fight ahead, Tehran commends the Bend and Weir leader for his ingenious timetables, and for doing so well against Thread so far, despite having so little to fight with. In the past, Tehran and the others simply developed a sense for when Thread would fall, and having a clear strategy would be good. There's also talk of continuing with the new Southern Weir, which Fenor and others spent only four turns in. The herd beasts will have multiplied by now to support many more dragons. After tomorrow, when all the weirs show up at Telgar, we can request what supplies we need to stock the empty weirs, Tehran says eagerly. Like old times, squeezing extra tithes from the holders. Like old times. However, he does admit that it's unsettling, coming back to weirs long, empty, and dusty. The women of the lower taverns were a bit upset, he says. We cleaned up those kitchens, Fenor says indignantly. According to Mardra, no man can clean anything, Tehran replies. The best revelation of all is that Mardra leads a queen's wing that flies under the rest with flamethrowers, one last line of defense before the ground crews take over. Lessa will be welcome to join, keeping her closer to the fight where she can help with her ability to speak with any dragon. Falar is almost more astonished by how many queens each of the other weirs have after centuries with only a single one at Benden. You allow your queens to fly against threads? He asks. Allow? You can't stop them, Tehran says. Don't you know your ballads? It is true that one of the most important ones is The Ballad of Moretta's Ride, about a queen rider, and Falar realizes he's been played at his own game. When he goes to tell Lessa the news, with the additional nugget that Kylara will be sent back south, she responds with a dragon-like kiss. Chapter 29 from the weir and from the bowl, bronze and brown and blue and green, rise the dragon men of Pern, aloft on wing, seen then unseen. In the early hours of the morning, Falar arranges the wings above Benden Weir while the rest of the weir folk watch from the bowl. Lessa has already gone ahead to Fort Weir to join the Queen's Wing. If she can jump 400 turns backwards, be sure she can handle herself today. When he's sure everyone has fire sacks and looks healthy, Falar makes the call to jump between to Telgar. The dragons fan out in formation, and the shining wing of golden dragons joins them. The dragons hum appreciation. Then the fight is on. The brass thunder of the war cry goes up, and they rise to meet their ancient enemy with bouts of flame. Riders feed Firestone to their dragons, and the air is full of thrashing wings and falling silver threads. Falar shakes his fist at the red star in the sky. One day, he promises, we will not sit tamely here, awaiting your fall. We will fall on you, where you spin, and sear you on your own ground. Quote, as the bronze dragon charged, flaming, Falar tightened his knees on the massive neck. Mother of us all, he was glad that now, of all times conceivable, he, Falar, rider of bronze Nementh, was a dragon man of Pern. Unquote. The end. It's time for our favorite game, Did the Cover Artist Read the Book? This question is complicated by the fact that there are so many alternate book covers for Dragonflight. But I would say a fair number of the artists did their due diligence before painting. 
they at least knew that the main character was a woman with a golden dragon, and several capture the moment when Lessa rides Rameth over the heads of attacking holders in a show of power and beauty, herself dressed in flowing white. There are several variations with a lot more detail, like Todd Lockwood's or others whose artist names I couldn't find without purchasing them. I really like the ones that show mountain peaks and a lot of detail on the dragons, whatever the artist's interpretation of the dragon's appearance may be. Some are very slim and delicate, some are classic European, others are a bit more like big lizards or dinosaurs, and others are a bit griffin-like. If I had the shelf space and money, I would seriously consider collecting every version of every Dragon Rider's book, but it would be impossible right now. <laughs> if I only planned to collect copies of Dragonflight and uh, Dragon Song, I would end up with at least 30 volumes. <laughs> anyway, let's focus on the Michael Whalen copies I primarily read from. His painting for Dragonflight shows the pivotal moment when Lessa and Rameth lead people of the old weirs ahead in time to help battle Threadfall. Waylon lovingly illustrated her dark wild hair, Rameth's incredible size, and the rocky peaks of the mountains. She's even dressed in leather riding gear. Rereading the book, I noticed that at one point there is a reference to the greeny sky that I haven't seen anywhere else, and I wonder if the skies of Pern are a little different in color from those of Earth? This could be the reason why Wayland's cover is such a bright green color. Believe it or not, I was actually planning to summarize all three books in the Dragonflight trilogy, but I lost steam halfway through Dragon Quest. I kept reading on my own to refresh my memory, though. The first volume has the most straightforward story, the most clear goal and trajectory for the characters to follow. From Dragon Quest onward, there are so many more characters, politics, and conflicts, I will discuss aspects of all three books, but in less detail, especially plot holes I noticed that may be the result of McCaffrey writing the stories over a period of time and changing her mind on certain points, not unlike John White's Sector General books. Wayland's cover for Dragon Quest is purple and blue. It features dragons flying and breathing fire to sear falling thread bunches and wraps around the book where the red star is visible beyond some mountains. I always assumed that the dragon on the cover was Nementh with Falar on his neck. But looking at it now, I'm less sure. The lighting is very different from the first book, thus the dusk-like colors, and I can't tell if the main dragon is brown or bronze because it's not really shiny. Rameth on the cover of Dragonflight is clearly gleaming in the light. So is this dragon bronze dement or brown canth? Based on the proportions of human to dragon, I'm leaning towards thinking it's Fenor on canth. This would match Waylon's cover with the old Gino de Aquil covers, since those also feature Lessa and Fenor. I can be sure of that, because in Book 2, Fenor is injured during an incident that sparks a lot of political unrest, and goes to the southern continent to recuperate, where he discovers fire lizards, the tiny ancestors of dragons. That fateful moment is depicted on the de Aquil cover. The short version is this. After Lessa brings the old weirfolk uh, forward 400 turns of the seasons, another seven turns pass. People who had been excited to return to the work destroying Thread have become tired, and they miss the customs of the old days, when they were on top of the world, and holders didn't question them so much, and craft halls gave them whatever they wanted without question. Falar tried to take a step back, so experienced leaders like Tehran of Fort Weir could lead the way, but it's become clear that modern dragons are bigger, faster, and smarter, and they innovate what the old-timers have taught them. Thread also starts to fall at unpredictable times, a variation probably related to the long interval. At the same time, Fenor discovers that fire lizards can become pets. 
So now everyone wants one, and the Smiths have begun tinkering with long-distance riders, sort of like Morse code, and telescopes that let them see the red star up close. Falar finds grubs on the southern continent that eat thread and wants to spread them everywhere. But he must also struggle to regain control, lest the old-timers tear everyone apart. His half-brother Fenor falls in love with a queen rider, and decides to let his brown dragon Kanth try to mate with her. But due to the irresponsible behavior of another queen rider, two queens die. In the wake of this sad incident, Fenor takes it upon himself to visit the Red Star, with the help of a telescope, only for both him and his dragon Kanth to be whipped around in a burning hot wind, broken and battered, conscious barely long enough to make the jump back to Pern. The third book, The White Dragon, has my favorite Waylon cover. In Dragon Quest, an amazing thing happened. Young Lord Jaxum of Ruatha Hold, the boy who took Les's place as leader of Ruatha, accidentally impressed a very small, very unusual dragon named Ruth, who has pure white skin. Though Jaxum feels torn between his duties as a future Lord Holder and his desire to fight Thread with his tiny dragon companion, he is quick to act when Rameth's golden egg is stolen by the old-timers. Roth is talented at time jumping, and together they rescue the kidnapped egg and perform other surprising feats. There is also a brief cameo from Kivan, the main character in The Smallest Dragon Boy. Also, poor Philar has to fight and kill some backwards tyrant in all three books, which is kind of funny to me. Okay, I think you're all caught up. The dragons in these books are big. Sometimes the cover art doesn't make this abundantly clear, but they are described in McCaffrey's text many times, and they are big. In the Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern, there's even a diagram showing Rameth next to a jet airplane. At one point, the book says Lessa is dwarfed by Rameth's six-foot head. Though Bronze Dementh is sometimes referred to as the biggest dragon on Pern, it is frequently stated that Rameth is actually longer in the wing than any bronze is, which would include him. Let's go over the dragon colors. Female greens are the smallest dragons. They are sterile due to chewing firestone, and they seemingly can't produce bronzes or gold eggs anyway. But they are still amorous, and their riders have to be cognizant about when they leave the weir, since a dragon in heat affects her rider's temperament. Greens are faster than the larger dragons, so they are good at swooping in to catch falling thread and are great messengers. Green riders have a strong sense of camaraderie with each other, and with the riders of blues, browns, or bronzes who fly with their dragons. A number of green riders appear briefly in the books, including Geralt from Ruatha Hold and Tereb of Fort Weir, who rides Beth. Book 3 delves deeper into the bond between human and dragon that is always present, even during pain, parties, and mating flights. McCaffrey confirms in The White Dragon that green riders, and the riders of dragons who mate with the greens, are just as tied to the emotions of the act as queen riders are. A special cavern in the weir is kept empty for the use of dragon riders caught in the throes of mating passions. Evidence that Weir's looser attitude towards sex is thanks to the uncontrollable urges of the dragon bond. Men wrestle with men as green flies with blue, brown, or bronze. At the end of book two, a girl named Miram impresses a green dragon, becoming the first female fighting rider in memory. And in book three, she has to come to terms with the desperate nature of her dragon's amorous needs, like any queen rider has to. The next size up is blue. Blue dragons are mentioned the least in the Dragon Rider books, though supposedly they are more numerous than the bigger dragons. They are male, but they can't compete with browns or bronzes in terms of size, so they are grouped more with the greens, though it seems rare for them to win a green's affection. The only notable blue rider in the series so far is Old Sagan, the first modern casualty of Threadfall. 
His dragon was Tagoth. He and the Green Riders were Weirling Masters and Teachers. Brown dragons are significantly bigger than blues and greens, and their riders usually become wing seconds under bronze riders. There are something like twice as many browns as there are bronzes. We don't get to know many of them, but Fenor is a major character in all the books and rides Kanth, who is unusually large and the size of most bronzes. After spending so much time with bronze Nemeth and gold Rameth, it's nice to see the bond between a rider and his less prestigious dragon. Although a dragon's size and color determines a rider's place within the wing, it is frequently mentioned that the bond between any man and beast is powerful enough that they would never leave each other or fault the other for being anything but what they are. The bronze dragons are the rarest fighting dragons and grow to be the biggest. Having a lot of bronzes is considered a sign of a weir's good health, and it's a good omen if the first egg to hatch in a clutch is a bronze. Their riders become teachers and wing leaders who direct dragon riders in flying formations. Bronze riders are eligible to become weir leader if their dragon flies the senior queen, as bronzes are the only ones big and fast enough to do so. Bronze and gold dragons like to pair off, so it is unusual for the weir leader to change once a mating pair has been made, though that doesn't mean the weir leader and weir woman are required to remain together as a monogamous couple in day-to-day life. The moral support of others in the weir can also boost a dragon's chance of succeeding. Bigger dragons are more intelligent, so they need strong-willed riders to manage them. Everyone tries to guess which eggs will hatch bronzes, and candidates will favor the eggs they think will produce that color, but no one can be sure. In the story, The Smallest Dragon Boy, there are two eggs that the main character pays attention to, but he never sees whether it was the splotchy one everyone liked or the greenish one everyone ignored that produced Heth. This adds mystery surrounding impression, for no one can really be sure what the dragons are looking for, only that the bond is always true. Golden queen dragons are the most scarce of all. In a single good clutch of 30-plus eggs, you can hope for a handful of bronzes and possibly one shiny gold egg. This is the only type of dragon whose color is known before they hatch, and the queen mother rolls it to the side to sit above the rest where she can keep an eye on it. When queens hatch, the dragons hum especially the bronzes, in reverence for this important addition to the global family. There seem to be no issues whatsoever with inbreeding dragons, so generations are only loosely paid attention to. Lessa's Queen Rameth is a slight exception since she produces so many eggs and so many fabulous queens like Pridith and Wirenth. In Book 3, the old-timers' queens are no longer laying eggs, so they steal Rameth's golden one in the hopes of rejuvenating their ranks. If you'd like to learn more about Dragon Impression, please listen to my episode on The Smallest Dragon Boy on YouTube or get yourself a copy of The Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern, which includes the impression story of Philar and Lessa's son. Some other basics include hatchlings' ravenous hunger, which they seem to have inherited from fire lizards. While the lizards turn cannibal, only the strongest surviving the nest, dragons immediately attach themselves to a human partner who then feeds them. Also, interestingly, dragons don't usually use human names, referring to them in other ways, uh, or via their dragon. They only name people they like or respect. Nementh does this with Lessa, and Kanth does it for Breck. The opposite example shows up in Book 2, when Nementh refuses to use the name of Weir Leader Takul, much to Falar's surprise, when normally the man's status as a leader and a bronze rider would earn a dragon's respect. This foreshadows how Tikul is later shown to be hard-headed and at odds with Falar. Dragons have a naming convention, the same way dragon men do. Their names always end with a TH sound. Apologies to my non-native English listeners, since English really loves this noise. 
These names are inherent. While fire lizards are named by their humans, dragons are able to communicate their own names as soon as they burst out of their shells and are impressed by a young man or woman present on the hatching grounds. They can be long, like Nementh or Selianth, or they can be short, like Beth or Hath. Male dragon riders then change their names after impression. For example, Lessa and Falar's son, Felison, becomes Thalesson after being chosen by Bronze Galanth. Another boy named Geralt becomes Geralt. This naming convention is easier to understand written out. <laughs> An apostrophe is placed after the first letter, replacing the second letter. And in some cases, the back end of the name is shortened, too. So Geralt, spelled J-E-R-A-L-T-E, -E, was shortened to Geralt. J apostrophe R-A-L-T. As for women's names, which don't change, I can't help but notice that almost all female characters of note have a double letter. Lessa, L-E-S-S-A, Breck, B-R-E-K-K-E, Mirim, M-I-R-R-I-M, Shara, S-H-A-R-R-A, and so on. The exceptions are people like Menorah and Kylara. This is a trend probably born of McCaffrey's desire for cultural atmosphere rather than signifying anything in particular, but I thought it was interesting. And McCaffrey's name happens to have two double letters in it, so maybe it's a personal preference. Returning to the dragon bond, McCaffrey writes about telepathic ability in many of her novels, much like Stephen King. You can make an argument for whether or not the Pern books take place in the same universe as her other series, such as Pegasus in Flight or The Rowan, based on the spacefaring nature of future society that utilizes capable people's minds above everything else. Admittedly, I would have a better understanding of this if I went back and read Dragon's Dawn before finishing this review, but that would push this episode back even further, so we'll just speculate about the history of Pern for now. We know that some of the original Pern colonists were sensitive and empathetic, and a combination of science and telepathy made it possible to breed dragons from the tiny native fire lizards. We also know that this connection between human and dragon has made the dragons continually smarter, to the point where it's frequently mentioned that even 400 turns time makes a big difference. Dragons in Lessa and Falar's time are basically sentient beings capable of complex thought though they are similar to earth whales in terms of freedom and emotional intelligence, more so than they are to humans. We can infer that contact with humans is what allows them to develop such a deep emotional telepathic language with their riders. However, their memory is a bit short, while fire lizards share more vivid picture memories despite being less intelligent. For this reason, dragons are able to shake off the discomfort of thread score burns quickly and return to battle, though it also means they are quick to suicide when their rider dies, since they live in the here and now. I will also mention that future Dragon Riders books are about the very smart dolphins that inhabit Pern Oceans. The main reason I bring up the possibility of dragon flight taking place in a broader McCaffreyverse is that Lessa shows an incredible telepathic ability. Though it's never explicitly explained, we readers know that she can not only speak with every dragon and watch wear on Pern, but she can also push or influence other people when she wants to. She can get a sense of whether or not they'll respond to her machinations in their mind and help them let slip things they might not otherwise say. She does this to Falar when they first meet, helping start the fight with Fax. And I believe she does it again in book two when she helps put the idea in Fenora's mind to visit the Red Star in Falar's place. She is a caring, loyal person, but she is also sneaky and self-serving when her emotions get the best of her. 
As one of the few women of power on the planet, she kind of has to be. I'll come back to the topic of women in a minute. There are also hints that the reach of the dragon bond is expanding. For example, Falar's bronze Nemeth is a particularly intelligent and talented dragon, able to project into the minds of certain people he chooses. Both Master Harper Robinton and Lord Jaxum experience moments of mind link with him, despite not having Lessa and Breck's ability to speak with all of dragonkind. It doesn't seem like they are able to do this with just any dragon, only particularly intelligent ones. While there are those who are very sensitive without being able to talk with just any dragon, like Natan, who can sometimes touch minds with brown cant, it seems like Nemeth's mind is unusually far-reaching. Natan's bronze Lyeth is too, as Master Harper Robinton experiences. There are several points in Book 2 when Robinton or Jaxum are surprised by a sudden mental link they don't know what to make of. Unfortunately, I haven't read enough of the other books to know where this plot point goes. I can only speculate that it's related to the increasing intelligence of Dragonkind. Dragonflight and its sequels are set in a medieval world that, on the one hand, had to start from scratch, and on the other, maintains nuggets of knowledge from their forgotten astronaut ancestors. For example, there are duels and hierarchies and rigid social norms. While at the same time, there is little to no religion, and everyone is aware that the planet revolves around the sun, despite the absence of telescopes until Book 2. This mix of modern and old-fashioned is compounded by the different cultural groups on the planet. There are the Rocky Holds, where most normal people live and work under the supervision of a single Lord Holder. There are the autonomous craft halls, located near Holds, where skills are passed down between generations. And there are the Weirs, the mountainous homes of dragon riders and dragons. Each one has different ideas about the relationships between men and women, the jobs of each, and so on. In Holds, the women live very traditional lives as wives, concubines, and servants. And it's not unusual for women to bear the children of dragon men to add a little diversity. In the craft halls, on the other hand, they have a bit more freedom with job opportunities, though they are usually expected to maintain celibacy until marriage a practice that is implied to have come from limited space in days past, when thread prevented the expansion of human habitations. And the weirs are the most unusual of all, since women live the easiest lives, with the most to do, and are welcome to partake in the pleasure of relationships to their heart's content. In fact, it's almost encouraged, since there is more room, and children raised within the weirs often make good dragon rider candidates, though even this notion is challenged as the series goes on. Falar and Fenor are half-brothers, the sons of a previous weir leader named Falon, and we meet Fenor's mother Menora many times due to her important role within the lower caverns. Menora is respected despite the fact that she is unmarried with a grown son, and she continues to run things and be a foster mother. Many women wish to be discovered on search so they can stay in the lower caverns of the weir, even if they don't impress a queen hashling, because they desire such freedom. Kylara is a notable example, who is aware she would have been married off by her holder father had she not been chosen. Other characters wonder if she would have faced a life of punishment in the holds due to her promiscuous nature. A big social difference on Pern is parenting. No matter where someone is born, parenting on the planet looks a bit different from what we Earthlings typically imagine. In both Weirs and Holds, there are usually foster mothers who care for children more than their actual mothers do. That's not to say parents don't care. They simply leave the raising of young children to people who specialize in it, rather than take much time away from their professions. Even Lessa, who would like to have more children, has no problem with a foster mother caring for her existing son. At the same time, foster mothers can wear many different hats. 
Fenora's partner Breck is a queen rider and a foster mother while running things at Southern Weir. His mother Menorah does similar work at Benden. In the case of dragon riders, a weirling master takes over from the foster mother when the boys impress a dragon and then teaches them how to care for the beasts. While often simplified, I appreciate that the dragon riders of Pern books don't stray away from politics. As I just outlined, there are three autonomous systems of government on the planet that all have to work together to prevent mutual destruction. One, the holds where most people live in the sides of mountains and hills under the care of lords who are often from noble bloodlines, but must be confirmed by a council of lords. Two, the craft halls where artisans and other skilled people live and work, passing down necessary skills like weaving and mining to the next generation, each craft overseen by an elected master crafter. And three, the weirs, where humans and dragons live together in hollowed-out volcanic mountains topped with starstones led by a weir woman who has recognized the senior queen and the weir leader whose bronze dragon flew her. Each weir is sustained by tithes sent in by three weir-bound holds and other items provided by the craft halls. For example, Benden Weir is located in the east of the northern continent and the closest holds are Benden, Bitra, and Lemos. So those are the ones that send the biggest tithes. The relationship between all these establishments are discussed in detail throughout the series, for modern leaders can become stuck in their ways the same way dragon folk from 400 turns ago can. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on geography during the summary, so I will quickly explain that Pern has two main continents, a north and a south. The northern one is smaller with lots of peninsulas sticking out into the ocean, creating large bays, with Ista Island being the exception. There are several mountain ranges, forests, and desert plains. The largely unexplored southern continent is much bigger and more tropical. Both continents are topped with an ice cap at the pole. Both are exceptionally mountainous from volcanic activity. Fort Hold and Fort Weir are the, in the west and were the first established colonies when humans arrived on Pern, followed by Benden to the east, and so on. The other Weirs are High Reaches, Eigen, Ista, and Telger. Southern Weir is the newest and only Weir on the southern continent. However, in Book 3, it becomes clear that the Earthlings who colonized Pern started in the south, before they were driven north where the rocky mountains protected them against Threadfall. There are tidbits thrown in now and then throughout the series to show how the close proximity of the Red Star, wrongly named since it's actually a planet with life on it, disrupts the rhythms of Pern. In Dragonflight, Falar knows that the tumultuous tides and swamp flooding are a sign that they are close to a pass, that the interval is almost over. We also learn that Pern experiences more volcanic activity when the Red Star is near, which results in the continents having lots of peninsulas and archipelagos formed by lines of volcanoes erupting in a row. Thread isn't the only danger that comes from something bigger than a moon getting too close to Pern. Dragonflight takes place at a turning point in history, when the whole world has had an upset after 400 quiet years, aka turns, without Threadfall. Lessa brings forth the old-timers, and everyone must choose whether to regress or move forward, and generally they choose the latter. Even the dragons begin to be more flexible. Lessa flies her golden rameth after a long period when no weirwoman has done so since they couldn't risk losing the only queen. A young lord impresses a hatchling without being forced to give up his hold. A brown dragon considers mating with a queen for the good of both riders. A woman impresses a fighting green dragon, throwing all sorts of conventions out the window and so on. Every character's ideas about how the world works are shaken at one point or another, even those like Philar and Lessa with the most flexible minds. I really enjoy Philar and Lessa's relationship. It's messy and ever-changing, and it's not always good. 
There are moments early on when the mentor-mentee relationship pushes them into unhealthy territory, like when Falar physically shakes Lessa when he thinks she's gone overboard, or when she tries to bait both him and his half-brother into fighting with her. Their first meeting is on the grounds of manipulation, her getting Falar to fight someone to the death, and him laughing at her failure, impressive as her feats were, in order to convince her to become Weirwoman. But in some ways, this first meeting of the minds is what attracts them to each other. At first, they see each other as only one thing, vengeful spirit or arrogant dragon man. But as soon as Falar gets a look at Lassa without all the grime of her drudgery days, and she hears him speak about the coming of the Red Star, they begin to see each other as people and appreciate everything that led them to this point. And they don't immediately become a couple, nor do they have a drawn-out will-they-won't-they narrative. For about two years, they get to know each other in the context of a council room setting, Falar dropping hints to help Lessa while she becomes convinced he's the only bronze rider left to make a difference. And then they become Weir Leader and Weir Woman together after Rameth's first mating flight. While a very passionate, exciting chapter, it doesn't solidify their bond. And later on, I'm glad that Falar fully appreciates how much he loves and needs Lessa even before she nearly dies. It can be annoying when two characters only know how much they need each other because they had a near-death experience. I would even hazard a guess that Philar was basically in love with Lessa from the moment he understood all that she truly was, whether he recognized that in himself or not, though he seems to realize it pretty quickly after they become roommates. For a chunk of part three in Dragonflight, Philar pines for Lessa's affections, even though he already shares her bed. These books are quite introspective, with the characters thinking deeply on many topics, and this is a great example. Halt. Trigger warning. Okay. Quote, he caught her arm and felt her body tense. He set his teeth, wishing, as he had a hundred times since Rameth rose in her first mating flight, that Lessa had not been virgin too. He had not thought to control his dragon-incited emotions, and Lessa's first sexual experience had been violent. It had surprised him to be first, considering her adolescent years had been spent drudging for lascivious warders and soldier types. Evidently, no one had bothered to penetrate the curtain of rags and the coat of filth she had carefully maintained as a disguise. He had been a considerate and gentle bedmate ever since, but unless Rameth and Nemeth were involved, he might as well call it rape. Unquote. I was quite shocked the first time I read this section, and I've taken some time to think about it while rereading the Dragon Rider books. Although I love the male characters, I do think there is a touch of female nighttime fantasy mixed into the narrative. The menfolk we focus on seem to more or less know what the women need, even if the ladies don't fully know it themselves at the time. To modern audiences, this interaction between Philar and Lessa, him wondering if he's forcing himself on an unwilling partner, is probably indefensible at first glance. And I agree. But I think the point being made over the course of the story is that Lessa getting used to physical intimacy is separate from the trust she eventually bestows upon Philar. For a long time, she is more open to the dragons than to any human though she has good enough relationships with Menorah and a few others. This is the chapter in which Lessa accidentally time jumps for the first time after getting impatient with Falar's steady teaching methods. One chapter later, Rameth lays her first clutch of eggs, and Lessa admits that she believes Falar can unite Pern against the looming fall of thread. And another chapter after that, she reveals that she does feel possessive of Falar, as Rameth does of Nemeth, and it becomes clear that the two of them will never stray from their relationship. Since this is where the story is headed, I really appreciate that McCaffrey took the time to explore Falar's conflicting emotions about his relationship with Lessa in the early days, in a very raw sort of way. 
There are many points throughout the trilogy where Falar and Lassa share a private look or inside joke, and it's so intimate that other characters get embarrassed. Both Falar and Lassa do things to offend or hurt the other at times, especially in the early days, like when Falar doesn't explain his plans, or Lassa hides her ability to talk to any dragon, but their bond is strong enough that they usually push through these moments with relative ease, seeing the bigger picture. Indeed, I think Falar's far-reaching imagination and Lessa's habit of pushing through restrictions is what makes them great. The bond between these two characters is laid down as the bedrock foundation of the story, the catalyst for the whole series. While not always the center of attention, Falar and Lessa represent the turmoil of Pern when the series starts, and grows into something sturdy, united, sometimes messy, and hopeful about the future. Lessa is a wildfire of telepathic ability and motivation, flighty and passionate, liable to spiral out of control, while Philar is steadfast, patient, and disciplined. She is fiercely loyal, to the point of being dangerous, and he is calculating almost to a fault. They act as checks and balances to each other, though sometimes their friends have to get involved when they both get too heated up about something. They both think pretty highly of themselves without being narcissistic. This dynamic is shown in their dragon's behavior as well. Rameth is enormous, domineering, and touchy, while Nemeth is steady, encouraging, and a little arrogant to match his mate's ego. I usually discuss feminist points in the books we read on this podcast, so I'll touch on it here again. I actually really appreciate McCaffrey's dedication to the medieval setting of the story, how women are generally not treated the same as men. It sells the setting. They are acknowledged as important parts of society. Not only the cooks and cleaners, but also resident healers though they don't hold lord or master positions. Only we're women have any real power due to riding golden queens. At the same time, their treatment differs based on location. Women in the holds seem to act mostly as wives and servants, and polygamy is normal with the lords. Women in the craft halls are a little more involved with the work, but are still expected to limit their sex drives, lest the halls become overcrowded. It's brought up frequently that the Pern of Lessa and Falar's time is much more populated and tilled for farmland than it was 400 turns ago. So some of these traditions come from old-fashioned requirements rather than modern needs. If everyone can be fed and housed, it's not as much of an issue, but the tradition persists and women can be punished for promiscuity. Inside the Weirs, on the other hand, it's a very different story. No one bothers with marriage, women are free to sleep where they choose, and children are raised by foster mothers in preparation for one day working in the lower caverns or being presented as hatchling candidates. Weirborn boys carry a strong sense of dragon man identity that gets them ready for the potential future as a rider. Though Philar starts bringing in more craft-bred and holder boys to give the hatchlings a bigger group to choose from. I actually have a theory that back when humans first came to Pern, only a few people could form a telepathic bond with dragons. But since then, dragon men have had enough kids in the weirs, holds, and craft halls that everyone has a little bit of the talent. And more do with every generation. I'd have to read Dragon's Dawn to be sure about this, but within the first trilogy we don't meet anyone incapable of impressing at least a fire lizard. Anyway, even Falar's beliefs are pushed when Lessa comes roaring into his life full of ambition and initiative, and when other events occur that result in women becoming fighting dragon riders. The first three Dragon Rider volumes make it clear that the stone of progress is rolling faster these days. What do you think of the social system of Pern? In some ways it's more flexible than other caste systems, but there are still strong distinctions made. I think McCaffrey did an admirable job mixing modern and medieval sentiments when she created this society. On the one hand, characters value bloodlines, especially when it comes to lord holders or master craftsmen. 
But at the same time, there are traditions that govern whether or not someone can become an official lord. A council of lords must agree that a young man is worthy to step up, and master crafters are elected to their position. On the one hand, we have characters like Falar and Lessa, who are the children of great men and families. And on the other, there are people like Breck and Natan, who don't come from noble lineages. Falar and other characters recognize that moving forward, everyone needs to be more open to each other and less secretive about trade secrets, or they risk losing precious information. Even dragon riders have a specific hierarchy based on what dragon they impress, though each colored dragon is recognized for their merits. Do you think the dragon's social structure will change the same way the humans will over time? As a quick side note, I started reading Dragon Song right as I was finishing up this episode, and it gave me a little more insight into the world of Pern, as it's been for hundreds of years. As I said before, I'd need to read Dragon's Dawn and Moretta and others for a complete historical picture, but I decided this tidbit was worth going back in, recording, and editing into the episode. Dragon Song is about Manali, a character who appears in Dragon Quest and other books after Dragonflight, who grew up in a very conservative hold on the coast. They are loyal to Bendin Weir and Dragon Riders, but are mostly concerned with their own well-being. They follow all the old traditions that were originally rules meant to keep humanity alive. Only men work and go out on the boats because women must stay close to the hold where they can be safe and can quickly get inside during Threadfall. Women and children are the most valuable asset to society in terms of keeping humanity going. Unfortunately, that means that society came up with rules to keep them inside. Manali is beaten by her father when she disobeys him, is disciplined by her mother to ensure she doesn't overstep again, and spends her days among the old women who never venture farther than the front yard. This is particularly interesting considering that at this point in the story, Threadfall is a recent occurrence, something that hasn't happened for 400 turns. These people follow these patriarchal traditions despite them not having a real purpose anymore. Manali also suffers from the fact that she has immense musical talent, but only men can be harpers, who leave home and travel the world where, traditionally, Pern was dangerous. I was somewhat incorrect when I said that craft halls have more job opportunities for women. That is something still evolving within the series. <laughs> While reading these early chapters of Dragon Song, I realized that Bendin's tradition of keeping the Golden Queen in the weir, not flying, is a descendant of these patriarchal traditions meant to keep the race alive. For hundreds of turns, Bendin only had one queen mother at a time, so it makes sense to keep her inside though they don't realize that this is what is making the queens weaker, unable to have truly grand, passionate mating flights that would result in better clutches. The strength of Lessa's will is shown in Rameth's enormous size, her indomitable spirit rising above the boundaries set upon her and other women. Like Lessa and Rameth, Manali's story seems to be about reminding the world that there are more people than ever before and seven weirs of dragons to protect them, so there is no point in keeping the women at home in the kitchen anymore. They don't need to be defined by their ability to have children anymore. They can break free. As for LGBTQ plus characters, characters of color, and disabled characters, I have less to say. Homosexuality is hinted at much in the same way it is in the early volumes of ElfQuest. In that series, a wolf-riding elf named Skywise is known for sleeping around, as well as having an unusually close bond with his male best friend. When asked, he says, Male wolves mount each other for sport, it's true, but I prefer what maidens have. 
At other points in the story, the depth of his relationship with his best friend is explored further, but tends to wrap back around to being such a deep bond that they can't quite describe it, saying, brothers in all but blood. The Dragon Rider books I've read touch on same-sex relationships in a similar way. The emotions of mating dragons spill over into the minds of their riders, so sexual encounters between riders are inevitable. But within the first three books, there aren't any confirmed male-male couplings that last beyond the mating flight. The only possible couple is Binaj and Tereb, who Fenor has a bloody encounter with in book two. That's not to say that the male coupling is portrayed in a negative light. It's more to show how proddy green riders get when their dragons are in heat. But it's not what I would call solid representation. As for people of color, I think the people of Pern are all of white European descent. The way things like sunburn or unhealthy gray skin are described more or less matches what I'm used to hearing about myself as a white person. That being said, I actually think a movie, miniseries, or TV show based on the Dragon Rider books would be great with an all-black cast. It occurred to me while reading about Lessa and her dark, wild hair. Wouldn't it be so cool to mix medieval themes and costumes with afros and dreadlocks? I might not really know what I'm talking about, but if the people of Pern are mostly descended from one small group of colonists of the same or similar race, then I think it would be neat to switch that race to black with a capital B. Really, you could imagine the people of Pern being any race, but I really love traditionally African hairstyles. Lessa could start out with a matted lump of hair from her drudgery days, and then brush it out into a giant afro after she cleans up, and then have long braids that keep it out of her face when she's riding. Let's get on it, Hollywood! There apparently was an attempt to turn the Dragon Rider series into a children's TV show, but according to the Jewel Riders archive on YouTube, McCaffrey decided to back out of the project, and the creators switched to a more Arthurian setting. Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders actually ended up being a colorful 80s cartoon in the same vein as Gem and the Holograms, Masters of the Universe, Star Fairies, and Thundercats. While looking these up, I also found a show called Black Star that seems inspired by the Dragon Rider books. The trailer says, John Blackstar, astronaut, is swept through a black hole into an ancient alien universe. Trapped on the planet Sagar, Blackstar is rescued by the tiny Trobbit people. In turn, he joins their fight for freedom against the cruel overlord, who rules by the might of the Power Star. The Power Star is split into the Power Sword and the Star Sword. And so, with Star Sword in hand, Blackstar, together with his allies, sets out to save the planet Sagar. Throughout the trailer, you can see Blackstar riding on a dragon, sort of like Philar meets He-Man meets Conan meets John Carter. The Trobbit people also look like Smurfs crossed with hobbits, <laughs> and Blackstar has adventures with a gang of oddballs who make me think of the Fellowship of the Ring if they were X-Men. I'm not going to hunt for every piece of media that features someone riding on a dragon. They're not all based on McCaffrey's work. There are dragon riders and dragon bonds in The Lord of the Rings, Aragon, How to Train Your Dragon, Dragon Rider, Ever After High Dragon Games, and Dragonheart. Not to mention books like Dragon Rider, The Dragon Rider Heritage, Dragon Rider Chronicles, City of Dragons, and Unbound. There's also a board game and action figure set called Dragon Riders of the Sticks. You get the idea. Everybody wants to ride a dragon. I think there was also a Dragon Riders of Pern board game. As for a few other talking points I didn't fit in elsewhere, I'll mention that there are several age gap relationships that I have slightly mixed feelings about. Falar and Lessa are at least eight years apart, though I had a hard time tracking that, and I think Fenor is more than ten years older than his partner Breck. 
Master Harper Robinton also has romantic feelings for Lessa and almost starts a relationship with his apprentice, despite the fact that he's, I don't know, at least 50? These gaps aren't really that important since the relationships are otherwise very loving and supportive, and the characters choose not to pursue them if it seems like a selfish decision, but I couldn't help but notice it. Also, the most sexually promiscuous character, Kylara, is unfortunately something of a typical bad girl. For a while, it bothered me that the main characters paired off in monogamous relationships, despite that not really being the culture of weird life. But honestly, I think that type of relationship was probably easier for McCaffrey to write. And I'm sure other types of relationships and characters are explored in later books. As for Kylara, her extreme interest in sex is more a symptom of her selfish nature than anything else. Fenor actually predicted in book one that her egomania would lead to disaster. She shirks her duties in favor of male attention, trying to capture the heart of every man around her, and getting jealous of other women, and this causes her to pay less attention to her dragon. Her choice to go have a fling with Lord Marin in book two pushes Pridith into mating earlier than usual, and that happens to coincide with Brex Queen Wirenth's first flight. The two queens are completely overtaken by instinct and fight to the death, leaving two women bereft and alone, though Breck is saved by her ability to speak with any other dragon. Kylara is one of the only riders in the books to show such negligence towards her bonded dragon, and also towards her fire lizard when she gets one. Fortunately, in regards to slut-shaming or lack thereof, there are other characters like Minora whose sex life is only hinted at, since it's never made clear whether Minora and weir leader Falon were anything more than friends with benefits that resulted in Fenor. She isn't described as having lingering grief for the deceased weir leader, as if she were a widow, nor holding any jealousy over the last weir woman who he would have lived with. Though that does bring up the disturbing point that if Falar had succeeded in becoming weir leader after his father, that would have meant living with the woman who was previously his father's roommate. An added level of weirdness is that we don't know who Falar's mother is, at least not from anything I've read so far. Ultimately, I think the politics of this situation overrode some of those details that might not be as dicey as they first appear. We can only hope. Well, do I have any other criticisms? Not exactly, but I will list a few plot holes I noticed between Dragonflight and its sequels. The Dragon Riders of Pern books seem to have evolved as they were written, so parts of the narrative change here and there, mostly between the first book Dragonflight and other books like Dragon Quest and so on. Sometimes more detail is added, as with how the dragon's sparkling faceted eyes change color depending on their mood, or how green dragons are proddy females, not dissimilar to queens in some ways. And sometimes things are outright changed. Here are the ones I noticed. Number one, Lytol, who becomes the warder of Ruatha Hold and raises young Lord Jackson, used to be a dragon rider until Larth was killed in a fire-breathing accident. In book one, his dragon is referred to as a green, in subsequent volumes, they say it was a brown. Number two, Kylara's name is written as Kylora in book one. She's also said to be Lord Larad's half-sister at one point, then changed to full sister. Number three, the spelling of Kylara's dragon, Pridith's name, changes from Pridith with two I's to Prideth with an E. Number four, the weir leader of Fort Weir, one of the old-timers brought forward, is called Titan in book one, but is Tehran starting in book two. And number five, I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that over 1,800 dragons weren't spotted even once during their time jumps forward. Maybe the night watchmen who saw them hovering in the night sky weren't believed, and it was never added to the records. 
Aside from these points, there are any number of details that get fleshed out over the course of the series, such as the mechanics of fire breathing using Firestone turned in the dragon's second stomach, their forked tails, or riders' helmets. But we'll leave it here for today. Oof, I'm glad I chose to limit the summary to just dragon flight. For a second there, I thought about making three episodes, but there are just too many politics after a certain point. Anyway, what did you think? Would you like to see a movie or TV show come out of this series? Leave a comment on YouTube or Instagram with your thoughts. Don't forget to subscribe and click the bell for notifications on YouTube, as well as bonus episodes. Otherwise, I'll see you on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, bye-bye, Earthlings.